afternoon and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 141 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Mon Woman. I'm Hannah Flint. And I'm Clarice Lockery. We're back! 2024 is here. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, this week, Hannah speaks to Grant Heslov and Joel Edgerton about the boys in the boat while we review the film. We talk Yorgos Lanthimos' Poor Things and feminist stock The Disappearance of Cher Height. Plus, Hannah also sits down with Sydney Freeland, head of the directing team on Marvel's Echo. Speaking of Echo, in our hot take, we'll be diving into a full, spoilerific discussion of the Spotlight series led by Alakwa Cox. But first, for the first time this year, let's check in with the crew. How have we all been? How is 2024 treating you? How was your break? Take your pick of any one of those topics and just tell me all of the things, Hannah Flint. Well, I actually want to hear from you because you have been, you've been into the future. <laughs> I was, I was in the future. <laughs> now you're back. <laughs> what happened? Tell us. Did you get anything right? Did you have the almanac and you made some bets? Unfortunately. <laughs> and I know you're a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Uh, unfortunately, hovercrafts have still not been invented. There's a lot more robots now. Um, so there's that. Uh, now, I, yeah, I was in Australia uh, for three weeks. Uh, sort of, I went in December 16th. I came back January 6th. So I spent Christmas and New Year's there. And it was a lot of fun. I had family out there. So it was cool to reconnect with them properly. Uh, but also to spend a significant amount of time away from the UK. And also to just take in the sun. Uh, the weather was incredible. I went to the beach multiple times. I had amazing cocktails. I went to the zoo. I did a lot of walking uh, because Melbourne and Sydney, I stopped over in Sydney for a couple of days. They're absolutely beautiful. Uh, so yeah, that was that was great. And I learned some <laughs> funny Australian phrases as well. Uh, my eldest brother, who's a family I, ha- I have out there, uh, there's this line he always says now, which is go for your life which means basically go for it, um, which is just so funny to me. There's also another saying, I'm not sure if you guys have heard this one before, happy as Larry. I don't know yes. who Larry is. I don't know why he's so mm. happy, but happy as I Larry is a phrase. Was, um, happy as Larry is a British, British thing. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Because I was happy asking Larry. a lot of Australian people so what their favourite phrases were, and happy as Larry came up like multiple times. Well, we know, were they white? Because <laughs> they're descended from <laughs> people from over here. <laughs> okay, I didn't know that. But um, yeah, th- there's that. And then the other one was, we're not here to fuck spiders, uh, which is like... We're not That's here my favourite one. <laughs> one. That's actually a great one. I like that. We're not here to fuck spiders. Like I know they use it in New Zealand as well. And it's, yeah. like, it's just... I That's love actually it. great. Oh, I love that. That feels like something that... That feels like something from the Heathers. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> fuck me gender yeah. with a chainsaw. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? That sort of, like, energy. Fuck me gently yeah. with a spider. <laughs> what was <laughs> the um, largest bug you saw? Largest bug? Bug? Do you not see that? That's This is why I'm quite scared to see... Honestly, like, I, I've been warned about the snakes and the bugs in Australia, bugs. but I did not encounter... Okay. many if any I mean obviously I saw snakes at the zoo um, and they were thankfully behind you know the- I love snakes snakes <laughs> I'm good with okay. the bugs though <laughs> I lived in Sydney for three months in mm. like 2016 and yeah. the yeah and the only thing that I actually um, the only thing I actually kind of I suppose um, animal near sort of oh my god that's a terrifying experience 
was when I was when I was at um, I don't it wasn't at Bondi Beach. It was another beach. Oh, it's another beach for everyone. Because you did you did you do the Pondai to Kuji walk? I didn't do the Bondi uh, walk. Um, the beach that I went to was in Melbourne. I think it was called Saint Kilda. Oh, I mean, you went to Sydney, so I thought you might. Have yeah, done no, that. I did. Go anyway, to, yeah. I was it, I was in I was in the sea, and I thought I saw something blue, and I was like, oh, is that like a child's like um, what are they called? What are they call? Um, oh, like the dummy, a dummy, thing. a dummy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a child's dummy, mm. and I was looking at it, I was like, and they were like, no. Don't touch it. That's a jellyfish. Oh, <laughs> Get damn. out the water. <laughs> and I looked around and suddenly I saw these like blue things. I was like, ah! <laughs> and so, yeah, that was my crazy, that's my craziest uh, near fatal incident. Yeah. Uh, uh, thankfully, I avoided yeah. all that type of stuff. But it was a really, really mm. fun trip. Um, and yeah, I need to just travel more generally. Uh, so it's good to uh, yeah. take things. Fun. I'm trying to do a lot more of that just on a more consistent basis going forward. Because it is good for the soul. Holidays are good for you. Recommend. Highly recommend. Well, I What have I done this then? What have we done? Well, I guess I went home for Christmas in Doncaster and Mag- yes. we watched a few things. We watched, actually, we watched two TV shows. Um, I don't, we, did we really watch much, many Christmas movies? We did watch Sound of Music mm-hmm. and Christopher Plummer. Oh my God, what a, what a... Yeah, that one. Um, Christopher Plummer is so hot. Like he was such. Oh, a, yeah. Oh my god. Fun trap. Me any day. Um, that that we, Edelweiss scene gets me. Every time. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. My dad's like he's like he cries every time that bit. Um, but we watched Monarch, the Godzilla TV oh, yeah, it's series, a good series, which I enjoy. Which I really did enjoy. Yeah. Although there's this one thing that really annoys me. Um, when it comes to like discussing places in the world, there's a bit where it's like the thing it popped up in uh, San Francisco, mm. then Alaska, then Africa, and it's like Africa is a continent. Yeah. You just said <laughs> cities. Mm. Like we ended up in Algeria, and it's like just say like Algeria. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like you could just say that, and it really annoys me how so often people just like treat Africa as this like country rather than uh, an actual content with a ridiculous amount of. Um, yep places I hate and that. then yeah mean girls and, i'm like where should they do they never say where she moved yes it's like girls. i'm from africa are you, why are you white okay. um <laughs> and then i watched the tv series on apple which came out a few years ago but we were really going to it with your favorite um amon gugu and battle roll called surface oh, yes. <clears throat> it also has my favorite oliver jackson cohen who i love because on his dad's side he's he's egyptian and Tunisian. <laughs> so and I met him at the Biffers and I was like, oh hey. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, so I'm Tunisian. And I was like, oh, okay. I'll be uh, uh, I love uh, this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's so hot. Oh my god. He's so tall as well. Anyway, I watched that series and I thought it was really quite good. I don't know. I think Apple actually has quite a good few TV shows. Okay. Yeah. I just love this. We're, we're eight minutes into our first episode of 2024, and Hannah's already like Christopher Plummer. Yes, Oliver Jackson Cohen. Yes, like we, we are fully back now. This is, this is we missed like we haven't done a podcast for three weeks. I've got all this thirsty energy that's been built up that I can only release on the podcast. There you go. Safe space. Thirsting. Um, would you like to add to this energy? I don't really do much thirsting over Christmas. I went into, I tried to go into the Shimmer uh, because my dad lives in Windsor now and the Windsor Great Park is where they shot a lot of Annihilation. 
So I just tried to ah. go there and evolve. <laughs> and no plants grow from you, unfortunately. No, it was a bit disappointing. Um, uh-huh. But it does actually look like it is in the movie. So if you're ever in Windsor, I don't know why anyone would be there. <laughs> go there and enjoy. Um, mm. I listened to the soundtrack walking around being like, Natalie Portman, <laughs> Tessa Thompson. That was a really good cast. I need to rewatch Annihilation. I actually want to read the book as well. That'd be the book is incredible. I love mm. the book so much. I can. I've got it. If you want, if you want to swap books, I can. Get yeah, it let's do a book swap. <laughs> I love the book. I like that. Um, and I, I, my, I gave my dad Oppenheimer for Christmas, and we watched it. And uh, he said he liked Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody else. <laughs> uh, he liked Emily Blunt, and yeah. um, he he usually hates Killian Murphy. I don't know why, yeah. but he was all right in this one. <laughs> mm. I did watch a Christmas movie. Okay, well, Christmas. La Confidential. <laughs> nice, great movie. Oh my god! Oh, yeah. I rewatched The Nice Guys. Oh, I did too. I watched The Nice Guys. <laughs> I think it was on Netflix and I saw that it was yeah. about to go and I was like, oh, I kind of want to watch this. And <laughs> so Ryan good. Gosling screaming. Yeah. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> oh my God, it's oh God. It's a movie that also may come up next week given that one of its alumni, uh, Angry Rice, yeah. is in the new Mean Girls, which we will be talking about next week. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. There's still a lot to discuss this week and we're going to start with the boys in the boat. Depression hit everyone hard. No jobs, no food. We were broke. Looks like you still owe a balance on this semester. So uh, what's that about making some money? You're the rowing team. You're on you get a part-time job included. She place to live. Eight-man crew is the most difficult team sport in the world. The average human body is just not meant for such things. Most of you will not be chosen. Beautiful speech, coach. Be a little bit wiser, baby. Put it on, put it on. Cause tonight do, do, do. is the night when a bit come on. <laughs> Which I have to add the content is because there's eight men in the boat in this line where they're like, yeah. there weren't eight men in the boat there. We were one. <laughs> Which, but I realized that actually doesn't include the coxswain. So he doesn't, I guess he doesn't count. He wasn't yeah. not a part I of I don't know her. <laughs> yeah. Even though he was like a very big part in the film. Anyway. Yeah, fuck <laughs> During the height of the Great Depression, members of the rowing team at the University of Washington get thrust into the spotlight as they compete for gold at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Directed by George Clooney with a script by Mark L. Smith, it stars my dear friend, Callum Turner, Joel Edgerton, Jack Mulhoyan, Sam Strike, Alec Newman, Peter Guinness, Luke Slattery, and Hadley Robinson. Uh, so, yeah, I've got two interviews. We're going to start off with Joel Edgerton, who plays uh, the coach. I mean, I mean, we had a really good chat because um, it actually got into, because he used to coach basketball and like, and mm. he said coaching basketball and I play basketball. So we had a lot of talk about like those type of films, what we enjoy in those moments. I guess it was just a really nice kind of, I don't know, getting that kind of underdog story I guess, coming through. And also, obviously, he's a director himself. So kind of talking about what it's like to be a director and then work with other directors as well. So, yeah. So um, here's that interview. And we're back with a review. Okay. Well, Joel, welcome to the Face of Black podcast. It's such a pleasure to chat to you. 
Um, how are you doing today? Very good. Where are you? I'm in London. I'm in my flat. Um, I haven't put my heating on, hence why I'm wearing my coat. Yeah, I'm right. such a I'm such a dad. I'm like, can't put that heating on. <laughs> no <matter> what. <laughs> um, but it's so um, funny because like it feels like this film is like a was a very cold thing to shoot. Luckily, you didn't have to spend too much time in any water. But I suppose no. like <laughs> tell me a little bit about it. I think these guys, um, these guys, these eight eight boys here all started uh, training rowing on the Thames and it was snowing, I think, on their first day. So it was like mid-February, mid I think. Um, you know, I got to wear lots of cardigans and um, wool and three-piece suits. So, you know, it's, it's one of the silver linings of, of um, being a little bit older and playing the coach and not having to be an athlete anymore. Um, yeah because you did intense training for like warrior this time you're like let me just like do the very impassioned maybe not too passionate speeches <laughs> yeah have a cup of tea and stand off to the side and cheer you on um you know but because of that experience of going through uh three months of training for warrior and that's sort of the simple i think these guys came two months early to start training together and obviously a different sport but the same ethos of turning up every day, not being late, having a kind of a, um, a plan and a goal um, and and going through a, sort of the learning of the skill that then became like a physical transformation for all of them. There was a lot of similarities for me. And so knowing I'd been through that, I, I, I really admired that they were getting the, ch the chance to have that challenge, knowing that, through all of the excruciating pain, there's this all this satisfaction and joy and pleasure waiting for you in equal measure, um, and uh, and and a lot of a lot of performance stuff as an actor you can kind of fake. Obviously, I mean, movies all about pretending, um, but there's some things that you need to do with your body that um, the cinema will 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 see the the, the fakery. Um, or someone has spent a lot of money doing a face replacement on you. Um, and, you know, the, the benefit that you get, as we, we did with Warrior, is that you end up galvanising as a group, moving into the actual shooting of the film. And these guys got very close. They understood what it was like to be annoyed with each other if someone wasn't pulling their weight. Um, they'd drunk together. They'd been in the gym all day all together. And, and you could see that feeling was good. And, and the movie benefited from it. I am very much partial to a sports movie. I used to play basketball to quite a high level as well. Did you used Did to you? play basketball as well? Yeah, I used to play basketball for England under 16s. I was, I was pretty good, Joel. <laughs> no, but you were better than me then. I mean, comparatively, I was, um, I you know, I played for my school and for my region, but never on a state level. But I coached uh, a bunch of eight-year-olds who had no idea what they were doing, partly thanks to me. <laughs> And uh, and I, I used to referee, and I used to referee mostly women's games, and oh, yeah. um, women were far more competitive and ruthless than guys were. And I had to, you know, like I remember thinking, oh, my life was on the line, and I'd say to a certain girl, "You have to go and clip your nails before the game," because you'd have you know to, you'd have to do a lineup. <laughs> yeah. And I remember no, I... telling this girl she had to clip her nails, and she looked at me like, "I'll see you in the car park." <laughs> 
Yeah, I've never I've never cried as hard as when I've been fouled out of a game, like just so mad, so into it. And and that's why I really love sports films. And I think like the kind of like love and basketball for me is amazing. I mean, a lot of the basketball ones, Hoosiers, Coach Carter. I, I yeah. suppose for you coming into this role, like and doing the coach part of it, um, was there anything that you kind of did you kind of have a little quite a little marathon of sports films? Was there anything in particular that you wanted to bring forward that was inspired by other films that you yeah, seen? Yeah, Hoosiers and um and uh Chariots of Fire and you know, ones where you particularly get it get under the skin of the coach a little bit. Um and I I had a basketball coach um who was like a tough dad who you constantly wanted to please as a result because he always looked very, very unhappy. And when I read this, it, it sort of evoked for me a lot of coaches that you see in football and various sports that you always wonder, like, why are you doing this? You look like you're not having any fun. You look like you're going to have a stroke any minute and it looks like you hate the world. Um, and it's because they care so much, you know, and uh, and, the, and the clues were there in the book and in the script that that – Orbickson's, you know, wife and his and the journalist are all saying, you know, you should smile more often, and or that maybe this season you <laughs> you'll break into a smile. It's like, oh, he's one of those coaches who's just like, it's like, why are you doing this? You look really unhappy. And I I preferred to, to do that to play that on film anyway than to be like the constantly warm, fuzzy, you know, positive uh, coach. I've never met that coach. <laughs> Doesn't yeah, exist. You probably don't see them much on TV because their teams probably don't win because they get too many cuddles and the team's like, we're great. And you're like, no, you're not. Yeah. You need It's about the participation team. that counts. No, it's about winning. <laughs> <laughs> I've got so many friends that are my age that have kids that are playing you know, AFL and, and football and all sorts of games. And they're just like, I don't know about this. Like everybody gets a trophy business. It's like that's not setting us up for the rest of the like for the future, is it? No, you know, get, no. Get a trophy and for it, losing. It's well, I actually do believe like that sport has been one of the most important parts of like how I navigate the world, like and all these things. So I don't know, like yeah, there has to be some level of like, oh, you come on, get get on. Yeah, I mean, you don't yeah, get fouled out of life, right? No, exactly. Right. And my, my coach used to say to me, she was like, she's like, because you get five fouls, right? She was like, if you end a game and you haven't got three fouls on your list, you have not been paying hard enough defense. And it's like, that's the way, right? right. That's so she wanted you, you to get to three. Four was risky because then the fifth one could come any minute. Some of them had to be like the kind of like, you know, at the end where you're like, there's only a few points in it. And you're like, I need to stop them getting this other thing. So it was like a sacrificial foul. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I had to do it just to stop them getting that point. So I like, rather than miss miss out the free throw line, rather than get two in, you know. Yeah. 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 I mean, God, we could just. It's a great just sport. <laughs> I mean, that's a great thing about basketball is there's also kind of a chess like strategy to how you use your timeouts and all that stuff. Mm. You know, my favorite games actually, and you know, I guess um, I don't know that rowing is one of these things because it's really really about pure hard work and skill. Yeah. Um, and there's a little bit of, ch- I guess what I was going to say is games where it's it's a balance of skill plus chance. And I guess the chance um, in rowing might be like what are the conditions in your lane yeah. to someone else's lane. There's not a lot of, uh, there, there's a lot of variables, but, you know, I'm, I'm not a person who's into games of pure chance. I believe that, you know, 
where the real spirit of somebody's uh, abilities and their and and their character comes in is when it's about the hard work you have to put into something ahead of time. Yeah, exactly. And when a play pull, when you pull off a play, you're like, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um. I mean, you have worked. I mean, God, like Paul Schrader recently. Like you worked with so many great directors. George, of course. Like, and you yourself are a director, and I suppose is part of um, the reason you might take on a job is also to kind of like, uh, I suppose, n- nurture that side of your kind of creative output. Like I can learn, um, learn, not say you need it, but like just pick up things. And what was the things that you kind of discovered about how George liked to direct? I mean, it's absolutely right. I, th- I think, you know, I, I think when, when actors decide or have the chance to direct something, there's this benefit they have of having been uh, front row seat for months at a time with so many different directors and you and you do even if you're not actively thinking I'm here for a learning experience as well you just you just by osmosis decide oh I like that the, the way that person talks to an actor right you know I, or I don't like the way that person talks to a crew member or whatever and you start good and bad putting things in a subliminal basket for the next time you're going to make something um, I think George, <clears throat> to me, had an incredible confident ability to know what he needed to shoot and not um, go too far with things that he didn't need. There was an efficiency, as with Schrader, actually, that the experience of knowing this is how this scene's going to work. So I don't need to shoot the whole scene every time. In a wide shot, I just shoot the beginning or the end. And there's sort of understanding how they're going to edit a scene and how that scene fits into the the bigger picture of the whole film. So, you know, I appreciated his efficiency. I appreciated his trust in us as actors and his ability just to kind of, you know, turn our dials a little bit without being, I think the risk with, with actors turned directors is that they may be too prescriptive, you know, like George's, mm-hmm. George was walking around the set in the first week. I'm like, you should be in front of the camera. What are we doing? Like, <laughs> like is he at some point going to go, step aside, Joel, let me, uh, you know, let me show you how it should be done and then you could just copy me. But he never, thankfully, did that. He had a lot of faith in me and I appreciated that. Um, I feel like a lot of, you know, there's, I really believe that film and cinema is like a reflection of the world and it has this power to somewhat educate. And I do feel like a lot of your choices have had this kind of, political angle where it's like loving in this film I really love how much it talks about how much like class and wealth goes into who's able to play sports and even today like you know I would say sports is supposed to be a meritocracy but certain certain things like tennis rowing unless you have the equipment or you go to the right places you're not going to get into it so I suppose Mm -hmm. like when you make a film like this is there a part of you when you pick stuff like do you think that cinema can have that influence and how change people's minds or perspective or just open up a door in that way to kind of ideas about, I suppose, the kind of inequality and things going on in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm I'm not adverse to just pure entertainment. In many ways, you know, sports movies are there to inspire us, but they're, they're just a great, you know, piece of entertainment. However, uh, I'm, more, I'm more inclined to think, you know, like, you know, when you used to go to a kid's, another kid's party and then you leave and you get something when you go home, you get a little kind of candy bag. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a sort of an 
okay-ish analogy, but what I, what I liked from what I liked from the experiences as a, as an actor is that the movie sort of beguiles you in one way through a particular genre, but it also gives you something to think about, something to maybe change your mind, um, challenge your thought, have an argument with someone that you go to the cinema with, and and oftentimes movies that are open ended in their conclusion can really sort of force you to do that. And as a, as a director, I, I believe that um, cause as a writer-director, if I'm going to take the trouble of spending a whole year or a year and a half of my life to make something, I want it to have nutritional value of some kind. So I'm happy to have one foot in a genre like I did with The Gift. But what I was talking about is, you know, is, is bullying and how, um, how accountable we should be for our actions at what age. Um, you know, so you know, every time I'm writing something, I'm thinking like, what? Why should I? Why should people watch this? And why should I make it? And it needs to have, needs to say something. I'm, who I really appreciate is is um, Jordan Peele and the way he made Get Out, because I know that if he made an important, you know, a movie that was like a really important kind of awardsy, even though he won awards, but like if he made it like one of those serious movies about. Um, about race, the people that need to see it won't see it. Yeah. All the people that are already on his side will be like, yeah, we'll see that. But Get Out was like a horror movie that you took home a big candy bag from that, you know. But you were in Star Wars as well, and that's probably one of the most political, (laughs) it's literally war is in the name. But, like, people can watch these things and, like, not understand, like, what what was the inspiration from, and sometimes there can be, there can be this like cognitive dissonance, I think, sometimes when people watch something, especially if it's like a sci-fi or specifically genre thing, where they're like, mm. oh, yeah, this is like really cool with Rebel Alliance. And you're like, OK, but if you compare it to like what's going on in the world, people seem to miss it. It's kind of funny, that balance, isn't it? Yeah, well, I guess Star Wars has become an actual real universe for, for so many fans that that the initial connection of what Star Wars was for, for George is sort of... Um, sort of been diluted by just the power of Star Wars as its own universe. I, I do sort of, I'm really inclined with cinema to be uh, interested in not knowing exactly who should be the good guy and the bad guy. I mean, Star Wars is obviously like, here's the baddies and here's the goodies, but then there's this occasional, you know, we start to see inside the heart of a, of a bad guy, you know, or Darth Vader and stuff go, oh, okay, well, now we're going to learn about what, he, what his childhood was like. I'm really interested in stories that, that like life, show us that we're not all good or we're not all bad. We're just the sum total of all the things that we do. And, and even if we do a bad thing, we have a chance yeah. with the next thing that we do to redeem ourselves in some way. Like Hannah Arendt, like the banality of evil, like there is no... That's why I love Dune, because Dune is very much that. (laughs) Yeah, I call it the Malvolio uh, theory, you know, in Shakespeare that you you kind of hate this guy because he's the kind of lieutenant for the Queen and he's being horrible to everyone. And then when you find out he's in love with the Queen and then people play this prank on him and it's like, if if you're saying that you're the Queen, if you love me too, wear these, you know, ridiculous stockings. And he, he gets called a crazy person and locked in a prison. And he's suddenly like... At the eleventh hour, I feel sorry for a guy who you've spent the most part of the play hating, and I love that. And the same can happen. The flip side is is that you could love a character, and in one action, 
they lose the audience, you know. Mm. And and I, everyone's I, got a backstory. That's the thing. That's what makes characters great and complex. Yeah. Is that it's not just surface. It's like, and I suppose for you, that's part of the excitement of doing. So like, even like, you know, Master Gardener, which was like, such <laughs> intense one. I was like, I love Paul Schrader because I don't think he cares what anyone thinks huh? about his endings and stuff. He's like, he doesn't give a shit if you don't like the way he's done it. But I kind of, that whole experience there and it was so wild. Yeah, I I, I, I think I think Paul really ended compelling. that movie the way he did. I, you know, I had lots of conversations with him. He ended the, that movie the way he did because he, he would rather people um, leave the cinema kind of doubting or co- confused or angry um, as a lasting impression rather than something where they're like, okay, that was like perfectly neat in a moral sense. You know, yeah, it was not. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if this woman would just kind of go with this guy after a day, but then that's the beauty. I feel like even for me as a critic, like it's always like, what does it make me feel? And I think if a film mm. can make you feel something, then it's done something, right? Even if you feel yeah. very angry <laughs> about it. Um, yeah. Well, this I, film, you know, I, film. I would love enjoy. to make. <laughs> I would love to make a movie where you know two people that go and see it end up like having a massive argument with each other afterwards. Not because then, of their interpretation of the film, but but more a case of whether they believe in what a protagonist has done or not has been what has been the right thing or the wrong thing. Because you know, we're all different. We all have different opinions on the world and political and social opinions. And like, I know I I talk to my brother about a thing and then I talk to my partner about the same thing and they have like opposite opinions. I'm like, oh, that's a space would be great to tell a story in so they can just get. (laughs) Well, we've got to end it now, but like you just reminded me of someone I saw tweet the other day about how um, she and her partner watched Andor and they got divorced afterwards because they realised their politics didn't align. So they really? got the power of Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're going to see each other at a Star Wars convention in a few years, and it's going to be awkward. <laughs> there'll be a, it'll be a great battle, though. It'll be a great battle. Bring your lightsabers, Joel Edgerton. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure chatting. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. So with George Clooney and Grant Hesloff as his producing partner, we're kind of more used to them doing films that about have a political kind of explicit political tone, Good Night and Good Luck, uh, Monuments Men, they produced Argo, the Ben Affleck director film, but this one feels like a very traditional sort of underdog inspirational story. It's not saying it's about politics, but I guess like where, how do you think, what do you think this is, says about where George Clooney is a, is a filmmaker right now and I suppose how this kind of film compares or contrasts from what we've seen from him before Clarice. I would I would maybe slightly kind of disagree with your statement just because I think in terms of if we're looking purely at what he's directed I feel like I don't know looking back like Good Night Good Luck, Monuments Men, um, Tender Bar, I feel like the actual stuff he directs is sort of the Ides of March as well. They're sort of vaguely political, but if you think about George Clooney, the celebrity who as an activist is quite direct about the causes that he, you know, he's, he, he supports very, yeah, he intervenes and he has very specific and he's very like forthright and very clear about his politics. I feel like his movies are so much less so than I would expect. 
And I feel like that energy has maybe been brought into The Boys in the Boat. I think he is a great director. I think the way that he just frames a scene and that he guides his actors, the way that the film looks are all great. But I just, I brought my dad to this so we could get a dad review as well. He quite enjoyed it. But I remember I turned to him at the end and I asked him, I was like, what was significant about this story? I don't feel like I understand quite yet because you have this first half of the film that is um, kind of the setting up of the team of them getting into the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And there I'm like, okay, they're working class boys fighting against this academic establishment. There's a really clear through line there, but then they get to Berlin and obviously they are under the shadow of Hitler of Nazism and then I'm, I feel like the movie's like, I, they try to make it like Hitler would be specifically mad about America yeah. <laughs> beating Germany as opposed to any other like white nation. Um, and I read afterwards that they, sorry, I'm rambling now, but no, I read afterwards that they cut the, the Coxswain, is it Bobby Mock? When he went to the Olympics, he got a letter like right before the competition from his dad saying, um, I've never told you this, but I'm Jewish. Like, and I just, (laughs) I feel like it's insane that that's not in the film because that's the story. Imagine this guy, he's about to go like into the heart of the Nazi regime. And he finds out this earth shattering fact about his identity. And what would that be like? And I, I'm so confused as to why we didn't have that sense of like, a symbolism to what they were doing. I kind of got to the mm. end of the movie and like, you know, I won't say what medal they won, <laughs> but yeah. I was like, I don't, what was, what was important about this versus any of the other teams that America sent to those Olympics? Yeah. What do you think, Amon? I 100% agree with everything Cleese just said, because I, my biggest issue with this film was you've got a lot of Nazi imagery on screen and you're not commentating on any of it. And that felt like a really big misstep to me. It felt really apolitical at a time when politics and sports were very, very intertwined. Um, And it just, when they bring Jesse Owens into this movie for about the 50 seconds that they do, it just put, it it even sort of put, put that, contrast in such a sharper it was very jarring it was very jarring because he had that line that he says like he's you know trying to prove people wrong not in Germany but in the US and it just lingers there and everything to do with Nazism and Hitler is just there incidentally it's not actually commented upon it's not actually discussed by anybody and that felt like a really weird move for me which is very interesting because obviously Chariots of Fire and was you know getting into that thing it was an influence and mm-hmm. that's obviously got not you know a Jewish character in it and that's mm-hmm. a big part of like the storyline of that film. For me, what was interesting is like if I if this was given to me as a fictional film, I think I'd be like I, I would be like oh this is like really cool this is like who's years it's got a bit of Coach Carter like that I'm mm-hmm. a real sucker for that sporting me like. Too underdog story mm-hmm. and I do appreciate this kind of um I do think it's important to talk about class when it comes to I don't know that we talk about class enough you know when we can't talk about mm-hmm. diversity mm-hmm. and representation we don't talk about the intersection of how you know 
<clears throat> so many people, I mean, I think the way that this, you know, the lead character that uh, Callum plays, like, I think it was quite, oh, you really felt for him with his shoes and like the mm-hmm. little things like that was a really, they really got to that emotional depth of it. But when you realize this is actually a true story, it's like, okay, um, as you said, what are the most compelling things? And should it, as again, it's that if you're putting history on screen of what's going on, what what are we emitting and what we put in, how are we framing it? And are we going fully enough? I wonder if you could t- like, um, when I say tradition as well, when I was watching, I felt like this could be like a 1940s kind of film of just even the performances, the shots, the kind of the dialogues, the back and forth of the women. Like it was a very um, chaste film. Do you get what I mean? It's got that sort of like code. I don't know. It's got that kind of Capri code sort of energy of like, let's just be an inspiring, uplifting film to rally treats. You know, that sort of like propaganda film that, do you get what I mean? What I'm saying when I talk about that, it has that sort of quality in that. I can imagine like Paul Newman, like or someone playing like the lead character. And a nine, I feel it was very 90s as well, because there was a real, <laughs> this, even the way it was shot, like I do think the kind of like I don't know the use of the sunlight and the water and like it was quite picturesque and idyllic like when they're having the races mm. I was like yeah. oh this feels like those really nice 90s movies mm. yeah. <laughs> where everything's sort of chill but then yeah. they go to Germany and you're like this is really not chill anymore <laughs> yeah. no. uh, it's, definitely, it's definitely a throwback for sure you mentioned the races for me that was my favorite part of the movie yes let's talk about that because I'm really interested I thought the cinematography of those it made me like but like rowing's cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah no the cinematography is really really great and i love how intense the races turn out to be not just because of how they're filmed but all the other elements that go into it the music the commentating how that gradually ratchets up as the race progresses all of that stuff is really great there's one particular race which is so close that they have to go to a photo finish. And obviously back in the, back in those days, photo finish did it a little bit differently. But that entire sequence, I think is probably my favorite part of the movie because you feel the tension in terms of trying to figure out who won. Everyone's like going, what's going on? That was really, really cool to me. Um, so for me, absolutely, the, the, the races were the high point in the movie. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie, seeing eight fit men <laughs> rowing. <laughs> Oh I was like, let me dive in there, brother, because that was hot. Um, I wonder if there's, if you could speak a bit about like um, the kind of any performances that stood out, Clarice? I love, I mean, I love Joel Edgerton. Hmm. I really enjoy, I don't know. He has this, he has that like tough, soft energy, which I just really like right. in a performance. I will say, I feel like he was like a bit on a, a low simmer for this partially because I'm so used to him uh, taking on quite challenging roles. I mean, the last thing we saw him in was Master Gardener, which was like very different types of performance. And this was just him being like quite grumpy yeah. <laughs> and determined, which is good. He's good at it. Uh, yeah, I thought Calentano was really great. Um, I think he he got the balance right of doing the sort of like stoicism and determination but without it feeling like I don't know too much too heroic too pure like I I did believe that him as a guy just trying to get his next fucking meal and his shoes fixed uh 
And also, I will say, I liked Luke Slattery as Bobby Mark. I, I thought he was a really interesting character. So that's why I was so shocked that they didn't include all the stuff about his dad. Mm. Um, but him kind of coming in at the final hour and being the... Cause I, really know nothing about coxswains and <laughs> what they do um but kind of seeing his perspective where he's not doing he has to be this leader and it's all about timing and the idea that you don't want to push the team too hard like yeah. right out of the gate and you have to just get it at the right moment and go okay now put everything into it i yeah. liked that tension in the race and mm. i thought he yeah he was really interesting mm, yeah I mean, I, I one of the things I do think why why Callum is very good in this role is because you off I, I I do get frustrated a lot of time when working class class characters are played by people who aren't don't have that background. I think there's a natural there's something natural about him doing that role because he like he, you know I'm not saying he's was, was, was impoverished, but I think when you I'm not saying everyone, but I think having someone who understands who is from that background, it doesn't feel like overwrought or. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so subtle and in, in in a way just not, yeah, I think you could easily go the other thing of being like a really angry, like crazy angry man, but his comes out in a way that feels like, you know, not melodramatic or overimposing. I think he handled that, that really well. And again, I do agree with you on like Joel Edgerton. Um, I don't know. There's something about him where I really, I just love that kind of coach energy. I mean, uh, yeah, I told you I love her. Have you seen guys seen Hoosiers with Gene Hackman? Oh, it's a, a basketball film. Ago. It's great. You need to watch it. It's mm-hmm. really great. But um, yeah. okay, Iman, was it? Do you want to finish up, wrap up with anything you wanted to add? Um, I will just say Alexander Desplat did the score for this, and it's really, really good. There's a lot of elegant strings and a very poignant piano that reoccurs at various points. It's quite simple melodies, but it's very beautifully done. And um, Alexander Desplat probably top 10 composer working today i think he's very very good and yeah another another good one from him I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to listening to the score more often on its lonesome because it is on spotify now i think he was in my spotify top 10 this year because mm-hmm. i listened to a lot of the Wes in 2024 now oh last year <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> yeah i listened to a lot of the french dispatch soundtrack oh, when yes. i'm working because <laughs> i'm like I'm important working at a newspaper. Ding. Literally, I listened to that track of the little typewriter sounds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this is out in cinemas now. Uh, screen, stream, or skip verdict, Amon? Hmm, I'm going to say screen. Uh, even though I have my quibbles, uh, I did have a solid enough time with this. Uh, I'm going to say a gentle skip. Like, it might be a stream, but I just don't feel... I like George Clooney as a director, but I I feel like I would rather watch one of his other movies. Hmm. I quite liked Monuments Men. That was quite fun. Um, I I prefer this to Monuments Men 100%. I'm I'm very much in between the stream and the the screen here. Yeah, Yeah, I think... I think I'm going to go stream. Mm. I think this is a really nice Sunday afternoon movie. Um, mm. So, yeah, I don't think there's a rush to go see it, but I do think it's a good Sunday afternoon movie. Um, right, well, before we go on to poor things, uh, here's my interview with Grant Hesloff, who 
Um, I feel like I was really excited to speak to him because he's obviously, he's been an actor before. He's a producer as well, worked with George Clooney. I find it really interesting to like grapple with like, I don't know, well, how they pick their films. Mm. I like doing that. We talked a lot, you know, we're talking about cinematography, also talking about the disparity in the, in the Hollywood industry of um, people who can get access. Because I do think, you know, in a way you could copy and paste a sort of thematic class system, what's going on with academia as well, what goes on in Hollywood and who gets ahead. Mm-hmm. But I guess uh, in the most Hannah Flint uh, sort of question, <laughs> I this year marks the 30th anniversary, uh, 30th anniversary of True Lies, oh. in which Grant Heslov stars uh. as the good Arab. <laughs> so uh, he very graciously asked, answered my questions about the sort of legacy of that film and representation. Mm. So that's interesting. Please, please enjoy uh, Grant Heslop, welcome to the Fate of Black podcast. It's good to be here. Um, I, I I spoke to Joel this morning, and that was great. And we um, shared a real love because I, I I love sports films. I love underdog stories. I used to, we talk. I used to play basketball um, to quite a high level. So we were talking it, about Hoosiers. It, was it basketball or was it netball? Oh, how dare you, Grant? Basketball. Oh, I am okay. a baller. I just, I just yes. want to check. <laughs> Yes, I played like for 10 years. I played for England. Like every basketball movie there is, I've seen Hoosiers, Coach Carter, Love and Basketball was my dream. I love, I love um, Hoosiers is one of my favorite films. Yeah. And, and watching this film was, I felt there was definitely like, I suppose, a spiritual kind of, not sequel, but kind of was, it was there in spirit. So I guess for you, what's your kind of relationship with this specific genre? And I suppose, yeah, what was the kind of maybe influences that you were kind of getting in to tell this specific talk story? Look, I, I like you, I've always loved sports films. You know, uh, I remember as a kid seeing Rocky. And so, and and from then on, all of them, Hoosiers, um, oh, what was the one? Um, uh, it's a football film um, with... Um, Is it Steve McQueen? Is it that kind of... No, 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 the- uh, it's called Rudy. Rudy. Yeah. Oh, when you say football, I think yes. you're, oh. not soccer, yes. but you're also an American football. I'm actually American okay. football, yeah. <laughs> um and and then everything in between. So I I, I love sports films and you know, uh, who doesn't love an, an underdog film? And uh this, you know, but what I love most about this film is that, you know, it's a true story. And so that combines the two things I like, you know, most in film. Mm, absolutely. And I I, I I suppose when you're kind of picking people together, this is a tough slog. And I have to say, Callum Turner is a friend of mine. <laughs> so it was really I won't hold it against you. <laughs> I know, it's very weird seeing him so blonde and blue-eyed. It was somewhat Ari, and I was like, okay, don't he's, stick to this one. But he's good. He's he, good in the film, right? Yeah, he's great. Oh, my gosh. And there's a moment in it where um, I think it's like just they're kind of, he's, he's, he's in his head, Joe's in his head about things and they're getting angry at each other and seeing it, it felt like this real kind of team effort getting stressed out. So tell me a little bit about getting the crew together and like that training that you put. Well, just so you know, sure that they were ready. Just so you know, Callum and, and that actor, um, they did have a couple of fights. Like they're, they're really, they're really good friends and they loved each other. But in the heat of making the movie and then all of it, they actually did get in like a couple of yelling fights. So, so. Um, but, you know, we had Callum and the rest of the boys, they they trained for, you know, three months to learn how to row. And they were it was real proper training. You know, they'd row in the morning 
and then they would you know work out and then they would row again in the afternoon um and then when we started shooting we would shoot you could only shoot till if you're shooting outside maybe till 3 three thirty, and then um we'd send them off to go row some more so they were they had their butts kicked they were knackered <laughs> they were, so they, they, actually... were <laughs> they were knackered as you guys say and <laughs> but it also you know it's they also all became like a real team real close yeah. and so that that was um that was important for the film and i suppose also shooting it because you know again it's eight guys on a boat well nine if you include the cockpit but like you know what were your kind of reference points in that because obviously you can watch the olympics and you can see the camera work and the cinematography that they use but then there's also trying to make it dynamic and exciting so tell me a little bit about how you kind of work with your dop and then george and kind of creating that because it was really quite yeah really dynamic to watch and look rather than just like see some guys on this road back and forth. well the, there there was nothing for there were there were no there was nothing for us to really look at because we'd never seen a you know there's i don't i don't know that there's been any rowing movies um and there was one or two that i'd seen and they were not dynamic and they were everything that we didn't want this to be and so that was the true challenge for us was to figure out a visual language to tell the story uh, on the water and uh it took us a bunch of trial and errors we we experimented with different lenses and different i mean what what people have to understand that these boats are huge so they're incredibly long and then there are you know 10 to 12 foot oars going out on both sides so you can't really get very close and you can't get in front of the boat because you can't make a wave you can't make a wake because mm -hmm. that'll make the boat capsize so there's really only you have to kind of be behind the boat and you have to have a long arm and you have to have a very tight lens and um it took us about a week of of shooting to figure it out um but as you see I do think we figured it out because I think we've turned rowing into something that is really seems really, really, really exciting. I I honestly I think sometimes with sports things like, you know, you might get a, people watching be like, hey, I want to try rowing now. Like I'd certainly when people watch like Bend It Like Beckham or anything else, they really want to get into these sports. I think it can be have such an impression. Um, do you think you kind of when you were making it, do you think, I wonder if we're gonna inspire <laughs> the next Olympic team? <laughs> I felt like we're going to, uh, you know, everybody's going to get a, a rowing machine at their house. <laughs> My mum has one. Yeah. She never uses it. Yeah. I, I get, it gets used every Christmas when I come, when I come home. It's like Peloton, right? Everybody gets it. And then <laughs> best intentions. Um, I hope so. I look, I would love for this to inspire, you know, the, the rowing community, which I didn't know when we made it is a very, it's a big, it's big, you know, in the States and here, it's a very, uh, it's a very, a rabid and um, uh, close knit community. So, I, you know, I would love to see more more people take up rowing. Absolutely, and I, I what I like about um, the film is I definitely think it's a really transferable conversation about the working class struggle that goes, and certainly a lot of sports, right? Because mm -hmm. you know, it should it should be a meritocracy, and it may be the closest thing we have in our society a little bit but money does come into it um you know and it's interesting you but specifically that you know look at tennis or anything that requires a lot of equipment you need to have money to do it and I suppose when you were kind of making it like 
you know, is that a kind of big important thing that you kind of took away that you really want to signpost rather than just make it about sports? Because I do think even like now in society stuff, even the film industry and all this, it's like, if you've got money, if you've got connections, they're the ones who are going to get the kind of little, not not to deny talent, but it also gives you a, a kind of a I couldn't, head start. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, these kids, this, I mean, and this is during the depression, but these are, these are the poorest of the poor kids. Uh, I mean, you know, Joe's, he's literally living, you know, out of a, out of a, an abandoned car. Um, this is a kid whose parents left him at age 13 to fend for himself. So, um, and, and the West coast schools back then, you know, these schools didn't have the money. The schools that had all the money were the East Coast schools, Harvard and those schools. Um, and so uh, uh, it, that's what makes that their win that much sweeter, you know, because these are guys who come from nothing and have nothing um, and, and sort of um, persevere and and win every time, every time that they're kind of not supposed to. And I suppose you, when you do a film, and again, it's based on true story, does that kind of affect the kind of how you would do Like, again, like, you know, this is talking about the working class struggle of getting to it. Like, is it something that you come away from that like, makes you more mindful of awareness of like, especially at this point, you and George are like making these amazing films. Do you think about that a lot about who you're hiring? Like, how how does it affect places that you can help, how you might be bringing well, something in? Is that something you yeah, think oh, about? Oh, it absolutely does. In fact, George and I, um, we started a school in, in, in the States so we started the first one was in is in Los Angeles and it's a it's a high school um and it's um it, it serves underserved kids so uh 90% of the students are either you know either uh, of color from diversity whatever whatever it is mm -hmm. but they all um uh the average income is well below you know and so the idea of the school is um uh, when the kids are done with the school, they they they've picked a a trade that they want to do in the film business. Whether they want to be an editor, a producer, a designer, cinematographer, first AD, hair and makeup, so on and so forth. Um, and by the time they get out, they're on a track to uh, join either the the appropriate union um, or, or uh, the appropriate internship. And so they have a, a track into production because you're right people who come i mean if you're going to be in the film business you have to start at the bottom and the bottom doesn't pay any money and if you come from a family that doesn't have any money you got to get a job you got to work and you got to make money and so it's just not it's not fair and you hear so much about uh oscar so white and all and, and all that and and I agree with it, but the but the reality is, is if you don't train kids, then then you you know where's the there's just not there's not the pool to find really great talent. So that's what we're doing. So we opened that school in L.A. We're opening one now in New York, one in um, Tennessee, uh, uh, not Tennessee, um, Louisiana. Um, and oh, amazing! Because that's another thing. It's like everything's certainly London, as if it's in New York or LA, yeah. London. If you're outside of that, the regions don't get as much of a touch um, on this. Yeah. So we're trying to open them in all areas where there's a lot of you know, where there is film work being done, and yeah. and to serve underserved uh, kids that to give them a leg up. 
And I suppose like talking about this kind of like this ecosystem, because I think in the kind of ideal world, it would feed into it, you know, you know, we wouldn't be in this kind of neat relying on 10 port releases. That'd be great. It'd be self-sustaining. I suppose as someone who is obviously very young, but has done a lot in his career so far, you've seen this kind of evolution. You've seen it change over time. I suppose when you look, and this is kind of a big question, but like, like, what do you, what do you, how do you think the cinema, like theatrical cinema is going to sustain itself really for the next, you know, five years, God, 10 years. How do you think it's looking now? What do you think the shape of it is at the moment, especially coming off the back of pandemic strikes and all this? Well, look, it's no doubt it's been a, it's been a brutal time and it's also been a big time of change, you know, with streaming and, you know, with the, the, you know, better and better home theaters. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of things, but I do think that uh, I do feel optimistic because I do think ultimately people want to get out and go experience a movie. People, you know, people got to go out on dates, people, family, husbands and wife want to get, people want to get out and they want to get lost in a movie. And that's, I don't think that's going away. It's going to make it, you know, it's going to make it more difficult for filmmakers uh, who aren't interested in making big, you know, uh, either genre or superhero films and all that. Cause that's kind of, you know, it's the big things that are going to be easier in theaters. Right. Yeah. Um, because it's kind of that thing. People want to get a sure bet. They want the bang for their buck, which yeah. kind of explain how Spider-Man No Way Home made like a billion afterwards. It was like, well, you got the soldier, you got superheroes, you got everyone's white pretty much. <laughs> so yeah. it's like everyone's covered. <laughs> yeah. So it makes our job hotter, but in some ways I like it because it it just means that we got to make better movies, you know, mm-hmm. uh, at, at a, uh, you know, whether they be dramas or uh, comedy, whatever they are. And we got to make, we got to give people the reason to be in the theater. So that's, that's our job. And I guess my final thing, it's, um, so next year is going to be like the 30th anniversary of True Lies, mm. which is a film that um, I love growing, I love growing up, but looking back now, I'm like, oh, okay. I suppose I'm really interesting, like when you- What does that mean? Your- what does that mean? Ooh, okay. Like it doesn't hold up for you? <laughs> well, I wrote, well, for me, one of the things I, in my, my book, I write about Arab representation and I suppose geopolitics ah. and the, the influence of that. And so for me, when I look at that film, among other things that, I mean- your I character Faisal, he's like the good Arab, but like it perpetuates these negative influences. Yeah. And I always thought it was interesting seeing your career afterwards. And I feel like, you know, you want to do this. I, I read that you wanted to do something on the white helmets. And I guess my thing is like, when you look, look at, again, that influence of cinema, how much do you think like the geopolitics in films, something like True Lies, which obviously at 1994, you'd hope that sort of kind of whole thing wouldn't do now. And again, there's a real evolution about our representation or that, but like, how do you think that cinema can play a part in either, I suppose, kind of humanizing um, people from groups who aren't who are typically maligned? And I suppose how much responsibility do you think that is a filmmaker, certainly for your position now? I mean, you were the actor there, so, I, you know, that's very different to where you are now. But I suppose how much do you think, you know, there is responsibility for filmmakers to kind of make sure that what they're presenting on screen, especially dealing with geopolitics, is, I suppose, accurate, fair, and not specifically kind of dehumanizing? Well, look, I I can only speak for myself. Mm. There's always going to be people who who stereotype and and do all the things that, you know, that I don't like or, you know, and 
and I'll watch a movie and I'll say, well, that's, you know, that's not true or that's not accurate in those things. And so that's always going to, I think, exist. Uh, just like, you know, there's just like there's always there's always going to be a dick. So but so my job, though, is is to try to tell stories. And I, I'm attracted to, to real stories and true stories mostly um, and tell them uh, tell them accurately. And and also to to try to, ca- you know, cast cat casting cast as wide a net to include as many people as you can. You know, sometimes I mean, look, this movie the boys in the boat it's a very particular place in a very particular time you know so it is a lot of white people it's and but anytime that we can make a movie or a show where we can be inclusive i think you know because that's the world we live in really i mean you walk down the street particularly here in london when i walk down the street i'm just you know i feel like you just literally you see every kind of person every kind of behavior every race religion and it's i love it it's fantastic yeah but i guess we wouldn't probably make true lies now i guess it would probably won't get over the line no you could make you'd make true lies now it's just that the bad guys would be you know it would be russian you know what i mean (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's like either it goes through a thing a cycle it's like it's like okay it's arab irish russian okay who are we on now (laughs) yeah i mean that is sort of what it is and uh and I, i listen i I, you know, but you're right about that. You know, I, I, when I'm, when we made true lies, I was very aware that I was playing, you know, I, that I, I was representing that, you know, it's not, and I think Jim was trying to be in, even in that time, he was trying to be thoughtful about it, you know, that saying, look, I'm not saying all, this is just a particular group uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and maybe, maybe now it feels clumsy, but I think then it was, I think, I think it was the right thing. Well, thank you so much for your thank time. You. And I really appreciate nice to meet it. You. This is Bella. Bye, bye. Bella, this is Mr. McCandles. Hello, Bella. No. Oh, she's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. But she's progressing at an accelerated pace. All the poor things, true care, truth brings. I'll take one lift, your ride, best trip. Always, I know, I know. you'll be at my show. I'll stop. Uh, but yes, look what it do. Classic. Your ride in this context refers to furious jumping. <laughs> this is very, very true. Brought back to life by an unorthodox scientist, a young woman runs off with a lawyer on a whirlwind adventure across the continents. Free from the prejudices of her times, she goes steadfast in her purpose to stand for equality and liberation. This is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos from a screenplay by Tony McNamara, and it stars Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, Rami Youssef, Christopher Abbott, and Jared Carmichael, whose wardrobe I desperately need in my wardrobe because, gosh, the clothes he's wearing in this film are absolutely mm, off the Holly chain. Waddington. <laughs> so, Great so good. Designer. Um, I'm going to come to 
you first, Clarice, because you have made no secret of the fact that you're a bit of a Yorgos Lanthimos fan. <laughs> Let the record of fact <gasps> that Clarice is holding up a poor thing's cushion. Did you get sent that? Oh, you got uh, No, I asked it for Christmas because I steal pillows from press events. So I have four. Wow. And um, I now have four <laughs> Yorgos Lanthimos themed pillows. Not this for you. For me. So I can sleep on Rachel Vice's face every night. <laughs> oh yeah, who can I see? Is that Colin? Who's that? Colin? Who's that in the background? Colin Firth. I can see you. Oh, I've got Killing of a Sacred Deer. So Colin. Oh yeah, Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, Barry Keoghan. I've got the lobster with Rachel Vice hugging the lobster, and then I've got the favorite, the scene where she got. Wait, is it Barry Keoghan or Barry Keegan? I thought it was Barry Keegan. Has we learned the full pronunciation of his name? I think it's Keoghan. Yoga. This is confusing because uh, I've heard I've heard different. I don't know. Now I'm God. Is this, this is our new studio jibbery, <laughs> <laughs> which I was very happy to confirm over Christmas that both me and Clarice are right about yes. the pronunciation. Hmm. Yes. So if you want to um, say it like Hayao Miyazaki, then you got to say jibbery. Jibbery, mm-hmm. but also. It's not a Japanese word, so that's why the the pronunciation is slightly up in the air because yeah. it's I kind hope... of a made up thing. So really, <laughs> the podcast uh, Jubilee Architects should change their names to Jubilee Architects. <laughs> Do you hear that? <laughs> you hear that, Michael Lina? <laughs> Jay Cunningham. <laughs> um, oh my God! Sorry, you're going to ask me a question about Yoga Slantham. Yes. <laughs> You can't show me pillows and not get me distracted. About <laughs> Does the fact I have four themed Yorgos Lanthimos pillows suggest that perhaps I am a fan of his work? I think it does. <laughs> but where, where does Poor Things sit for you in his wider filmography? I'm going to sort of answer that question a little bit in terms okay. of, for me, Yorgos, at times his sort of, absurdist filmmaking has me a bit of a weird loss um and i like um which makes me a little bit up and down on some of his films but for me this is like his most purely entertaining film and i was sort of in the bag from moment go from from moment one did you have a similar sort of feeling and where do you think this sits in the absolutely agree i think it is still a hundred percent heart and soul like a yorgos film but mm. definitely if you compare it to like dog tooth or yeah. killing of a sacred deer mm. like it's a lot more i guess i would say accessible like i so i, <laughs> I spoke to ravi Youssef about both we showed both our dads killing of a sacred deer mm. and they didn't have a good reaction mm. um th- my dad just said nothing and left the room and we never spoke <laughs> of it again and i asked him recently I was like, when he got me these pillows, I was like, you've seen this movie. He was like, no. And I was like, no, you have. <laughs> He's actually like suppressed it. Like wow. it's like a trauma. He's blocked it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I feel, but on the flip side, he likes the favorite and I would feel more comfortable showing him poor things. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I think poor things and the favorite kind of go together because they're very literary films. I think with the Tony McNamara a collaboration there's it, it gives it a bit of a new vibe um but i love the vibe this movie's perfect um <laughs> uh, it's great it's wonderful someone say something else 
Uh, Hannah, <laughs> talk about the journey that Bella goes on uh, in this movie. Um, I think it's just fascinating. She starts off very childlike, but there's so much that happens on her journey towards enlightenment as she learns more about the world. Uh, what were the highlights of that journey for you? You know, it's interesting. Emma Stone said um, when she got the Golden Globe, she was like, I, this is a rom-com mm-hmm. about a girl falling in love with life itself. Mm-hmm. And I really relish um, certainly having more romantic movies with female leads where actually it's not about ending up with someone. Mm-hmm. It's about, I mean, I do think, you know, it's about her ending up choosing herself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I really like is the pacing of... Um, I think, you know, the fact that it's done into sort of kind of five parts, this kind of narrative journey, so five chapters. And again, we're getting this kind of sort of um, her catching up with her body. Mm-hmm. I guess the the child, like, you know, her, having this childlike brain, but then kind of moving on. I think that's really interesting about, you know, ch- children see, haven't been hampered by <laughs> the fucking awful state of the world. So they come mm-hmm. out in this quite pure way. How does that articulate in the body of a full grown woman? Um, who's also had a life and mm-hmm. I think um, but then it's also that exploration of sexual autonomy and you know I'm really, really happy that we're going to talk about the disappearance of Cher Height after this because they're definitely in conversation with each other um, as films and you know I, I guess it's for me I just I guess I just love how you know it's interesting I think about Barbie and how people say this is like oh you know oh it's oversimplified language um about feminism mm. as like some people can criticize but like I think people need that because I think a lot of people don't need it that simple and I think this is one of the most simplified ways of saying like how women should have autonomy over their bodies and kind of cutting through the misogynistic patriarchal like sexist like you know, capitalist ideas about how women are supposed to act in polite society and how they're supposed to act with their body, how they're supposed to, you know, submit to other people. I thought it was just beautifully pure and, I don't know, effervescent. And, I don't know, I felt so much as it kind of progressed, but also allowing the sense of this isn't just an idealistic film. It's a realist. I don't know. It, as much as it's like a really heightened world, there's so much realist, realistic kind of themes and conversations and dialogue happening mm. um so i really enjoyed that and especially like a two hours 15 minutes movie and i and i'm sorry to like jump into your territory amon mm-hmm. um but i really like the way because i'm actually doing a q a next week with the composer and the sound uh sound director uh and if on on the film because um, way films did it so i'm going to be talking about that so the second time i watched it this week i was really focused on that and i love the way that this kind of same like motif is reproduced, but kind of, it starts off quite staccato mm-hmm. at the beginning. And if it matched the kind of, there's also a kind there's some sort of like, remind me of like Looney Tunes in some ways, you know, and like Fantasia, you know, the way we kind of like mm. fit the music to the ridiculous actions that she's doing. I thought that was really funny. And then as it as she gets more, I suppose, intellectual and motor, <laughs> like her ability to control the body and speak and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I did find that it got a little bit more kind of, Elegant, I guess, both elegant and sleep fluid and seamless, and I thought that was a really good way way to kind of track the kind of evolution and mm-hmm. I, not develop. I suppose the the emotional intelligent and, and yeah. intellectual development of the character. 
Yeah, hundred percent agree. Uh, I had that in my notes. See, I know things about music too. <laughs> <laughs> I can talk about themes, tunes, oh, and scores. Just, just stealing my shtick. How dare you? How very dare you? No, it's all good. Uh, Who's it? It's the composer's Jer- Jerklin Fendix. Jerskin Fendrix. Jerskin um, Fendrix, yeah. And yes, fantastic, fantastic score. And it's not just that sort of part of the craft that mirrors Bella's journey. It's also the cinematography by Robbie Ryan. This film starts off in black and white. It's got fisheye lenses as... Bella starts off more childlike and then the wave of colour that gradually makes its way into the film as Bella goes on her journey is also beautifully done. Um, We talked a lot about Bella's journey. We should talk about the actress playing Bella, Emma Stone. She won the Oscar a few years ago for La La Land, a film which I love and I think she's great in. I think her performance in this dwarfs what she did (laughs) in La La Land. She is absolutely phenomenal uh, in this movie i mentioned the childlike state that she starts off in that could have easily been overdone in how she acted that as she's basically a new person in this world and trying to figure all that out but it's very subtle what she does in that opening and as she develops the confidence that she does that with is so likable and you're you're always sort of it's it's a very easy character to get invested in and root for as she tries to figure stuff out and for for Bella herself I love how even though there's a lot about the world which sucks like Jared Carmichael's character especially sort of just drops a lot of truth bombs in that regard the optimism that she retains despite everything is just a really cool character detail but I I thought Mm -hmm. Emma Stone was absolutely incredible and, and just a fearless performance uh, in this course. I, yeah, I think that th- what I found, so sorry, just to be like, I talked to Emma Stone, but <laughs> I did get to very briefly talk to her about this. And I love that um, for you. <laughs> I'm really happy that I you got love, listened to I love that for me too. <laughs> <laughs> and she mentioned the idea that you know, for her performance, she didn't draw from every anything because mm. Bella is a metaphor. And I had this moment of like, oh my God, she gets it. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that is why the character is so powerful to me. Mm. And I think I've seen to other people because she, she's meant to kind of, she represents whatever journey you're having with your life. Um, yeah, and I think there is, what's really crucial is that you're right at the beginning, um, she's not trying to be like a baby and Mm. there's no like infantilization because Mm. she is always smarter. She's always the smartest person in the room, but it's about, I think the story is almost about the world catching up to her Mm. um, because it's just that she's not able to communicate yet what's inside her head. And I think uh, in, in terms, I mean, I, I just kind of saw it a lot through my experience with autism, like being autistic and, this idea of unmasking because you spend your whole life, you know, we see this previous Bella where she spent her whole life being forced to be a certain kind of person because that's what Mm. society demanded of her and to be a certain kind of woman. And 
this like experience that she has it's like it's kind of fucked up and she she's angry about it and she has to make peace with godwin her god Mm. which is willem defoe's character who's like dad and god combined Mm -hmm. she has to make peace with like the fact that she exists as she is um but also she has to start from the beginning and i think when people talk about unmasking as an autistic person, you do have to start from the beginning because you have to completely strip your personality and way away and go, okay, what's the real me? Um, and like, that's what this movie is to me. And it's, it's, I think Emma Stone's uh, the way that she expresses it. Like she just, she just nails it. And I don't think she's conscious of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I didn't have time. Self-deprecating to... person though, isn't she? I find that she's, she's always yeah. like, I would say but though, I, something I do that. She just understood about it. That I yeah. just, uh, it's great. Yeah. And I guess it's, you know, it is a sort of, you know, Frankenstein is a metaphor. So mm-hmm. this is, I really like the idea of having this. Yeah. I mean, I think Bride and Frankenstein was maybe a little bit of an in, in, influence, but, um, but yeah, I found I totally agree with everything you're saying, and that's like the beauty of a, a film like this is that you take away your own things from it. I think yeah. that's always really interesting. With, yeah, it's like I know that I should I say like, like there's there's also like a loads of like a trans metaphor as well that people have read into it, and like I think oh, that's yeah. the beauty of it. Well, like, it's a real rock different... chart test, isn't it? What you see, yeah, there's what different you get ways back. to look at it. Yeah, yeah, and I get I guess um, one of the things that's really interesting to me though, I've seen a lot of cri- I, I spoke to someone. Um, and they were like, and I think Angelica J. Bastian wrote a piece about like female desire. It's not mm. she kind of thing. And I, and I really disagree with that piece because I I feel like, and this, a friend of mine said to me after she was like, yeah, why does she, she orgasms all the time during like pantry. I was like, every time she's been a man, I was like, she doesn't though. She doesn't actually. She achieves orgasm on her own for the first time, several times. She has it. She has a lesbian relationship. Like she's has so many moments where she's not technically enjoying it but also she's just in control of it and I was like for me that was amazing because it took me years to get to that point and as we go for the disappearance of Cheryl Height we'll get into that about like what how do female get pleasure so I don't know that was one of the things I really disagree with I thought it really handled female pleasure and being in, being in control of it and um, also exploring I exploring think. yes she's an adventurer yeah. that's the thing and i love that kind of thing it's event she's an adventurer mm-hmm. um and i think yeah. it really it, it challenges us to adventure more whether it's our sexual pleasure our kind of like we're so scared of the world because it's such a awful place but i guess it's a kind of thing of like challenge you to you know again it's it, interesting the timing obviously like polite society and all that it's a real yeah i love mm. it it's kind of like a um, and I, I kind of, in a way, I, I, as much as it is, you know, there's lots of men in this who try control her in certain ways. I do, you know, I do really appreciate that there, that, you know, Catherine Hunter, I thought was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I love her. Before we move on, we should probably talk a little bit about Mark Ruffalo, um, who stars in this movie as Duncan Wedderburn. Uh, if there's a better character name in 2024, <laughs> we shall see. Um, but... He is hilarious in this movie, and I have not seen a performance like this from him ever. Um, it feels like it's very outside of himself, and he's going to places he hasn't explored before on screen. Um, and he does a really, really fantastic job. Uh, I was the, the the majority of the funny stuff in this movie I attribute to to him. 
Yeah. Some of some of the one liners he has. <laughs> At the risk of being yeah. immodest, you've just been thrice fucked by the very best. And it's stuff like that. Which is, <laughs> which is very, very I love how he's very petulant. Um, yes. And he's also very like mustache twirling, mm-hmm. sort of um, pantomime villain sort of thing. And I just love the fact that he's just like, like fragile masculinity. Mm. <laughs> that he's literally that metaphor. I think everyone's got a purpose, right? Everyone's got a tropey role, like, you know, the father, the kind of controlling. And I really love the way that like the sort of like inherited trauma abuse that came through with Willem Dafoe and like how he was, mm-hmm. what he's taught and how the abused can become the abuser mm-hmm. um, in certain ways. And I even like Rami, I like, uh, you know, I love Rami, um, but I like it. It's, it's his first film role, which is wild yeah. to me. I mean, obviously he's done the amazing, if you haven't seen Rami, the series, uh, you should 100% see it. Um, um, but like, I really love the sort of this sort of gentleness. Uh, but there's a scene that I think is so perfect where, She's going away with Duncan and he comes in and he's like, you can't go away. You're going to marry me. And he goes, right, I'll knock him out. And then she goes, oh, I fancy you even more, Max McCartney. It's like, and I love the kind of simplicity of the dialogue. It was like those moments where it's like, oh, now you're not just this kind of like nice guy. You know, he's the nice guy, right? But he's also not a nice guy because he's like, like, yeah, yeah, he's like the quote unquote nice guy. So I love that it really plays with those kind of traditional sort of, again, in a rom-com, these tropes, you know, I kind of remember like, I don't know. Like, you know what you remember? Like, even like Duncan is like, reminds me of like, um, uh, what's his name from, I think his name is Glenn Gulia in The Wedding Singer. You know, the one who he's supposed to marry. And it's like, wait, if your name, if you marry him, you'll become Julia Gulia. Have you seen The Wedding Singer? <laughs> um, but it's uh, kind of like, Ed and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a while ago. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I think I really love those. And I think each actor, you know, managed to, um, you know, they had the, of course, like, you know, Emma basically lights up every room that she's in mm-hmm. as Bella, but I think they're really great scene partners. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. um, they gave her space, but also, I, you know, they weren't just there. They weren't just supportive. I kind of think they really did the job and everything that they were supposed to do. And I think they really understand the mission of what this was trying to do. And I feel like there was a lack of self-consciousness mm-hmm. in all of the performances that really, really worked for me. Or if there was supposed to be something, you know what I mean? I think they really yeah. understood the assignment of what this was supposed to be. Well, it's like all the, I loved like every male performance in this because it was just every single different way that they tried to control her. And even... Yeah, um, even Jared Carmichael. Yeah, he had through this idea like he wants to hurt her through his yeah. philosophy and, and Max, who's is the nicest guy that there is in the film. And yeah, and he's yet. still fighting this battle to not I mean the first thing he says to her is he calls her the arsler so like yeah <laughs> he's he has to work through some stuff to actually yeah. see her as a full complete human being yeah um and also he wants to marry her when he's like it's like mm-hmm. you you're gonna agree to marry someone who's not in full control of their you know yeah functions they don't aren't, aren't true 100 understanding of things it's advantage yeah. he takes advantage of her it, while, while Duncan takes a, tries to take advantage of her sexually, he tries to take advantage of her romantically in the stable of the institution of marriage. And uh, Krista Abbott's just like a bad vibe. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Great, though. Great performance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a great film. Uh, it's time for our screen stream or skip recommendations on poor things. Clarice. 
I mean, obviously screen. <laughs> screen and consume with gusto. Like <laughs> screen. It's a screen from me too. Um, it's not my favorite Yorgos Lanthimos though. What is your favorite Yorgos? What is your favorite? Um, I think the lobster. <laughs> mm, interesting. Please. Good choice. Yeah, oh, don't I, I kind of lose. Don't choose. No, I guess for me, I, what you said at the top of the top of the segment was um, it's more like you found it more accessible. And it's certainly mm-hmm. the most accessible yoga slanthamos. I'd say the favorite being next, mm-hmm. but I mm-hmm. kind of like like dog tooth. I was just mm-hmm. and like dog lobster as well, and killing of a sacred deer, and like so for me, like I kind of like it when it does do that where uh, actually maybe the dog maybe dog tooth is my favorite <laughs> yeah anyway. that's it it's hard to choose between because i think there are as you said there's different types so it's like dog tooth versus poor things it's yeah come on don't make yeah. me choose i'm gonna choose poor things is my favorite yorgos there easy <laughs> and you know what <laughs> exactly and that 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 Makes sense. <laughs> is what everything are you, you trying said to say, like, Hannah? You literally said it at the top of the show. I you know, said you don't lean towards the more kooky, quirky, this is weird things. You like yeah. things to be a little bit more straightforward. To a point, yes. Um, and and like... this is the most straightforward yoga science class, right? We can agree. I is agree. it? What do you think? Oh, actually, maybe the favourite is the most straightforward, I would say. I mm. think the favourite is. This one's got a bit more like layers ideas mm. but i love the layers i love the ideas um i'm going to talk about the layers and ideas of our final film the disappearance of sheer height the height report the book stunned everyone with the clitoris and the vagina is one orgasm sexually satisfying if not how many how that's done should be incorporated into a lot of lovemaking every woman's gonna want to read this and men should too they hated the book. They tried to sabotage it. Keep it down. It's so like hotcakes. It's the 30th best-selling book of all time. How can you shut somebody like this up? I love me. Gonna love myself. No, I don't need anybody else. I love me. It's that Haley Steinfeld yeah. song. It's ah. been about masturbation. And I love it. It's all about how she doesn't need a boyfriend because she can just masturbate. <laughs> That's certainly it's one the- way to read it. One of my favorite... No, that is the reading, though. She is said it? that's what the song is about. Okay. Yeah, the song's like, I can touch myself at any time, day or night. That <laughs> it's, is... Yeah, it, that's, that's what it's explicit. about. <laughs> um, but I love it. It's one of my favorite pop songs of recent times. Um, and I is relevant to this, which is The Disappearance of Sheer Height. Sheer Height's 1976 best-selling book, The Height Report, liberated the female orgasm by revealing the most private experiences of thousands of anonymous survey respondents. Her findings rocked the American establishment and presaged current conversations about gender, sexuality, and bodily autonomy. Bella Baxter would love this book, <laughs> but how did Sheer Height disappear? This film is directed by Nicole uh, Newnham and features uh, quite a few recordings of Cher Heights writing uh, narrated by Dakota Johnson, um, whose voice I love. Mm. Oh, she's a great voice for this. Uh, but we'll hold off on the Dakota talk <laughs> because I guess we should start with this idea of the disappearance 
because it is true that I I'd like vaguely heard of the height report, but I've never read it. She's not somebody we talk about a lot when we have all these conversations about, um, you know, feminist sexual liberation. And so Hannah, I just wanted to ask what your, just kind of what the raw emotional reaction to this documentary was, because I found it incredibly infuriating. Yeah, yeah. I had never heard of Show Height. So I, so this was for me when I saw it coming out and I was like, whoa. And it just every, I, I think I really went, I really connected. There's so many scenes of, um, I mean, the beauty of a documentary that has benefits from so much archival footage and TV interviews. But there are so many, so many scenes where we watch Cher and it's someone's talking and we see Cher's face having to listen Mm-hmm. to men whether it's you know male journalists male presenters commentators oprah winfrey audience members who are basically oh, telling her <laughs> that telling her that she's wrong and yet they haven't read the book mm-hmm. they just they have no you know they dispute all the findings because they say they don't know it they don't agree with it and it's so and i was just like getting so angry when i was watching it so yeah i had a very visceral reaction to it and I had so much empathy for what she did and why she would you know again America is fucking it's fucking worse but like I guess escape the sort of um puritanical um sort of uh, control and uh, society that basically kind of, you know you know, wants to maintain a certain social order when it comes to like domestic sphere, women, male experience, and mostly heterosexual, you know, experiences. So yeah, that was my, so I, I probably had exactly the same reaction to you, Clarice. I think it was during the Oprah segment mm. where you even see Oprah like mm. about to snap. Yes, like, yes. Jesus Christ. Mm. You made imagine. Oprah mad. Mm. I know. Amon, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about the structure because this isn't someone we're not, this isn't someone we're super familiar with, mm-hmm. kind of the structure of the documentary and how uh, I think it it tries to link out to a lot of the stuff that was happening in America at the time. There's mention of Anita Bryant and also a lot of the, I like that there's a segment about how it connects to the anti-LGBTQ legislation and how, you know, all of this stuff is really the same thing, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which I think... Some feminists really forget. Mm. <laughs> it's nice to have that reminder. Uh, but yeah, yeah well, just yeah, a little bit of the structure and the context. And did you feel like you got the big picture of what was going on? I did. I think this is structured and edited really, really well. And I think they lucked out a little bit with Cher Height as the subject herself. The uh, materials that they get to use, um, not only with linking it to everything that was happening, as you say, but with the writings which are narrated by Dakota Johnson uh, in a very breathy voice, which sort of emulates Cher Height's own voice, and the way in which that sort of comes into play is great. The numerous studies that she does and how they put that on screen in terms of the writing, but also uh, giving voice to some of what the responses were and how that plays out, all of that is done very, very well. And I think with documentaries like this, you need that sort of vast material to switch things up and not have things be samey. And I never felt samey at any point watching this movie uh, because of how it's edited and because of what they had to draw from. I thought it was really well done. 
And Hannah, I wonder if you could talk a bit about some of the other voices that we hear from. I mean, they interview kind of people she knew, some of her like old, I guess, like sexual acquaintances, boyfriends. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I really loved hearing the excerpts from the actual hype report. Um, right. And I feel like they chose some really good ones. Did anything stick out to you? I mean, obviously the main thing of the documentary is basically her uh, dis, you know, kind of proving a previous scientific research uh, run conducted by men. I can't, forgive me, I forget the names of the men, but the established norms of how women get pleasure was that they solely get it through penetration. And I love the fact that, I love the fact that it, um, what we didn't just hear the stats. We didn't just hear the kind of, I mean, as much as those stats are obviously a big part of the document is how people kept on trying to question her methodology and mm-hmm. the statistics and all that type of stuff. But I really I love the way that it used um, the kind of um, anecdotal answers to the questions. And uh, I suppose instead of it just, you know, to, you know, reading out what the people are saying, but then also having this kind of like uh, what they called reconstructed um, scenes of the people who it might be who were talking about their experience uh, both men and women um i i really appreciate those elements of it and it kind of the fact that we learned that obviously that clitoral stimulation is the most common way that women orgasm um and it's kind of how much that changed so many people like that's mad that's major that's major because i think you know and certainly not, not to, i mean i i feel like you know, I do a big part of my book, like a big part of a book is about sex and representations of that and how we achieve orgasm. And like, you know, I talk about the first time I ever masturbated. Like, and I think like, for me, I really felt like, oh, I wish I knew about this woman before because there must've been something through the way, whether I hadn't heard of Cher Height, her legacy has come through in other things. And therefore we have all as a culture benefited from this research. And I think it was really like, I suppose I felt really appreciated that I feel like I could be in dialogue with her, even though, of course, you know, she died in 2020. Mm. But like feeling like you're kind of continuing that work that she established. And it feels nice to feel like this through line to someone who was really doing something. So I I really um, relished that. And I also, just another thing I really relished about it was, you know, again, we were talking about class earlier on in like, uh, when we're talking about uh, the boy in the boat. She came from nothing. She had no money. She had a release. Her parents left. Like, and then she was also, you know, she did modeling work and, um, you know, and she did play. And it's this, this idea about like how we also try and bring women in academia down. You, if you're, you know, if you're too pretty, if you're too this, no one takes you seriously. Um, if you don't come from money, like there's a bit in it where she talks about how like a university, her Columbia professor was like, I don't believe you did this thesis because mm-hmm. I don't believe you had those books in University of Florida. I don't think you wrote it. And it was like that sort of thing. I thought that was really, really well done. So we kind of understood who she was and we got into the kind of this, this sexist discrimination when it crosses gender lines, class lines, you know. Um, I thought that was very, very well done. And, and you mentioned some of the people, you know, I mentioned earlier that's quite a lot of it's about heterosexual relationships. She was bisexual. You know, they had someone who was from the lesbian council. Like there's lots of different voices because, of course, you know, like – sex between people is not limited to opposite yes and I wanted to end because another section I found really interesting is that she did a report on men she did a survey of men mm-hmm. and asked some questions about that and I found that section like really quite heartbreaking because 
you know, it's again this other thing when we talk about feminism. It's the you know the the impact that patriarchy has on both men <clears throat> and women is very negative. And Aman, I just wondered what you know, what are your you know, we were talking about our visceral reaction. What was your visceral reaction to that section? Aman was like taking notes, like. <laughs> I'm going to be a good lover. <laughs> I, should, I hope every man watches. I'm always like, I hope every man watches like these type of things because I do think they need to, mm. they need to watch it. But also about having the conversations about like, like, you know, there's so much st- emotion that is not allowed to be expressed that I found very sad. There's that line that Cher Height has. This is when uh, she has to sort of, you know, uh, answer for herself I guess when she's on a panel uh, where all these people are mansplaining and I felt similar to just shaking my head anger uh, as you did but there's a line that she has where it's like it's hard for men to denigrate masculinity because then other men will look down on them because of them doing that Um, and that's the thing that stuck out to me Uh, I hope now that we're a few years removed from that panel um that things are a little bit better in terms of men discussing their feelings because female pleasure is an important thing um but yeah uh, in the moment watching that it was just i felt the same frustration that you guys felt um the the oprah uh so the segment that, that you mentioned also put it into very sharp contrast to just like <laughs> it felt like oprah was this close to just like you know breaking in and, and telling some people off. And I would have liked to have seen that too, to be honest. But even, it, but even in those moments, that, that was a question about her book about male sexuality mm. and that the kind of um, emotionality relationships and love. So she was really like, that's what it seemed more people had an issue with her talking about opening the door and getting people to talk about like issues of male sexuality. I do appreciate there was one person on that panel who said, look, like we don't cry. Men aren't allowed to cry. Like, and you had all these stories and stuff. And with people, I don't know people like that. It's like, Mm. uh, you say you don't know people like that. It's because you men don't fucking talk to each other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that is a big thing. Men don't talk, talk, you know, only now, only more in recent years have men feel more comfortable to talk about their feelings. But like, Mm -hmm. God, I'm started watching Sopranos and like, that series, right, when you think about it, I was, I was talking to someone who said you should start watching it, and he was like, you know, as much as it, it's a very overtly masculine, kind of insane, like, overly sexualized, blah, 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 all that type of stuff, and they're dickheads. Like, Tony Soprano going to therapy inspired so many people to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's like that, and it, I, I think that's, yeah, this thing where it all feeds into each other. This isn't male female this is like human way of communicating connecting to love and to experience life in a way and share in things that you know you don't have to be so closed off so i think so you know those scenes with the men it was like dudes Mm -hmm. just read the book Mm -hmm. david hasselhoff like absolutely (laughs) struggling Mm -hmm. like i think he was he was trying to contribute but like (laughs) yeah he was um, mm-hmm. having a How tough do you talk time, about that this? guy. <laughs> uh, 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 women. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think we've, we've talked about kind of everything that we need to talk about. So let's go to our uh, screen stream or skip on the disappearance of Share Height, Hannah. Uh, screen. See it soon, Spotter. Aman. Yes, yeah, so there's a screen for me. Poor Things is my film of the week, but this isn't far behind. And 
as Hannah said, it's a pretty good double bill. So if you can figure that out on your multiplexes, do it. Yeah, agree. Screen, double bill it. Have fun. <laughs> <laughs> Go have some sex afterwards or <laughs> masturbate, whatever you want to do. <laughs> well, you know where they don't have a lot of sex? It's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> You're not wrong. They're very, they're very chaste people in that <laughs> um but we are going to talk about the latest entry in the marvel cinematic universe or marvel televisual universe it's echo echo you have so much pain in you 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 so much rage that you can't contain it I'm getting a little tired of your broken premises, promises, looking at your page, seeing different numbers and numbers, call you on your cell, you're hanging with the fellas, the fellas, hanging with my girls, you're always getting jealous and jealous. Um, I use that song because it echoes the last <laughs> line, <laughs> last word of each line. So that's about it. That's a tenuous thing. Uh, I like that all the songs this week have required explanation. <laughs> we've, we've run out of the obvious on the podcast, so we're going to have to just get more and more niche and you're just going to have to deal with it. I'll love audience. And I've actually just, while we were doing I've just started a Fade to Black music call intro playlist Woo! so oh it's God. happening guys we're, shailing, <laughs> we're gonna do it yeah let's get into it five months after the events of hawkeye maya lopez is being pursued by wilson fisk's organization leading her to return to her hometown in oklahoma where she must come to terms with her past reconnect with her native american roots and embrace her family and community with a writing and directing team led by marion dare and sydney friedland it stars alecra cox chaska spencer tantu cardinal Charlie Cox, Devery Jacobs, Zahn McLaren. Oh, wait, should we take Charlie Cox out? No, it's been very widely publicized. Okay. Oh, sorry. I thought everyone knew he was in it. Everyone knows. Okay, that's it's fine. in the first okay. episode. Everyone knows. Zahn McLaren, Cody Lightning, Graham Greene, and Vincent D'Onofrio. So I got to chat to uh, Sydney Friedland uh, before Christmas. Um, and it was really cool. Um, we kind of got to get into this amazing one shot fight sequence in the first episode which i think is one of the best fight sequences i've seen in the mcu actually um just some, we'll get into that um we talked about i suppose the kind of um uh native american representation and kind of in how the series kind of bridges the past and the present making sure that you know i think often native americans are considered seen as extinct by cinema because everything's always period um and then yeah we talked about a little bit about the fun kind of um echoes powers and also i guess the um um the sort of uh techniques that they were using to really because there's kind of a few fun filmmaking differences as they show like have these epilogues in the first um, few episodes uh, that hit at the choctaw nation's history so anyway here is that interview uh enjoy Sydney, welcome to the Fade to Black podcast. Oh, um, congratulations on entering the MCU. It's such a big thing nowadays when a director comes in because there is a ridiculous amount of pressure. I guess, like, was there any... When I spoke to Nia DaCosta, she spoke to a lot of Marvel directors, got a bit of advice. What was the kind of things that you kind of thought about before you came into this world? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I have to say, like, I, I definitely did the same. You know, um, uh, actually, funny, funny story, I remember... Um, in, I think it was January, I want to say January 2020. It was like before, just just before COVID. 
And I got a, um, a message from Bert and Birdie, who were co-directors on uh, Hawkeye, on the Hawkeye series. And, and they sent me an email and they said, do you know any deaf indigenous actresses? And I was like, nope, <laughs> good luck. Um, and it turns out they were they were co-directors on Hawkeye and they were trying to cast the Maya Lopez character to be Echo. Um, and uh, they found Alakwa Cox and, you know, and obviously she was amazing. But yeah, I definitely, definitely tried to pick as many brains as I could going into it. You know, what is the MCU? What is it like working for Marvel uh, in front of, behind the camera? Um, and it was, it was a very, uh, very, um, uh, very welcome. Uh, it got a lot of good feedback. What I love about um, the show, I guess, is I think there's a big thing about representation. It's like, we don't know where to find someone. You don't know. But if you do that little bit of digging, you can find people. And what I love is that this cast has not just got new faces, but Graham Greene, like Tantu Cardinal. Um, so um, I guess kind of making this series and also kind of with these actors who've obviously got a long legacy in film, obviously playing quite, you know, somewhat dodgy stereotypes at sometimes, but also... I guess creating this sense that um, indigenous Americans or First Nation people, they're not period. They're not in the period, they're historical around every way. So kind of in the, I love in the show that you kind of this balance where the history is there, but it's also situation and presence. So can you tell me a little bit about like formulating that and making sure that the representation felt authentic? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because like, again, like Maya Lopez on paper is, is someone who's indigenous, she's deaf, she's, you know, um, uh, <clears throat> She's an amputee. Um, those are things that might be foreign and different and other to a lot of people. But the indigenous side of things is incredibly familiar to myself, right? And I think one of the things that I've sort of encountered time and time again is is people saying like, "Well, I don't, we don't know where, to, like you said, we don't know where to find that person. Like, the, does that person exist? And are they out there?" And the answer is yes, because typically, like Hollywood is is you know we're we're sort of like, I think, preconditioned to think that the the only actors out there are, you know, cis, white, you know, mm. um, uh, either male or female actors and actresses. And the answer is no. You know, I think in this in this show, there's a perfect example of that, too. You know, um, representation was so important to us. So like that meant, meant that we had indigenous writers, indigenous consultants, indigenous people actors in front of the camera but that also meant we had deaf consultants uh deaf writers in the writers room uh you know uh deaf actors and actresses in front of the camera and one of the great things that came about that is that we found <clears throat> we learned from one of our deaf writers is that deafness can be hereditary and so what that meant was that my one of my lopez's parents would probably be deaf and so the easy you know sort of the path of least resistance to say let's find a great new american actress but we wanted to try to honor that. And we said, let's go out and let's try to find a deaf indigenous actress, another another person to play, play the mother of Alakwa Cox. And if you just look, the talent is out there. And um, and that's what we did. We, we found an amazing actress in uh, uh, Kat uh, Katrina Zervogel, who plays Maya Lopez's mother. She's deaf, she's indigenous, um, and um, and her and, and uh, Maya were so good to, together. Um, so that was just like one example of, of how, you know, the, the talent is out there, you just gotta look. So this is on the Marvel Spotlight uh, banner, which I understand is the kind of, you don't need to watch everything to be able to understand this story. It's quite self-contained, like a kind of series one-shot kind of thing. Um, but I really love the first episode in spending about 30 minutes to not only kind of connect to um, Hawkeye in a way and have those characters, but also kind of connect to the history of who Maya is. Um, yeah, just kind of coming to getting that, making sure that 
that balance of trying to make it like you don't need to watch that. What was that kind of, I suppose, the challenges in that? Yeah, you know, it was interesting because we it was important to do two things. One, one is that we had to like firmly plant Maya in the MCU and we had to show that she is, you know, this she exists in this world. Um, she holds her own, she's a badass. But because of the story we were telling that was a little more street level, that was a little more grounded, that was a little more gritty and visceral because she's a villain and she's coming from that world, we don't want to shy away from that. We want to lean into that. Um, but then we always knew we were going to deviate from that and 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 go to this corner that is that has been previously unexplored in the MCU and in some cases, you know, just film in general as well too. You know, um, uh, so so we knew we knew that we were going to um, sort of explore that area, but it was also important that we set up my in the MCU. So it was really it was it was kind of having having that set up so that we could then depart and then visit this unexplored uh, section and portion. So I'm such a massive fan of fight sequences and I actually feel like in a way they serve as like musical numbers in the sense of they push the plot forward but they also reveal something. And I rewatched the fight sequence in the first episode like three times because I just, I thought it said so much about the turning point and who Maya is. <laughs> yes, yes, for the sake of the uh, the audio, Sydney is pumping. Yes, um, it's just so powerful that shift. There's that shift, and it's so violent. And I love that it's got very much like Netflix MCU kind of like coming through on this. So yeah, tell me about putting that together. Yeah, so so that the, there's a fight scene in the first episode that you know I'm incredibly proud of, and a, a lot of people work very hard on. You know, and and on the page what leaped out for me was was the fact that Maya Lopez enters the scene as a teenage girl but she leaves as a cold-blooded killer and we've internally we've called that scene the birth of a villain right mm. um and and that kind of dictated everything from there and and so there there's but it's it's also it w it was ambitious and we knew that going in because we shot the scene as a oneer and um but typically like typically you don't see a lot of oneers in TV um, you see more winners kind of in film than TV. That's because TV has more more time, or sorry, film film uh, um, feature films have more time. You know, more rehearsals, and you know, uh, I remember looking at um, Atomic Blonde as as a reference, and they've got a they've got a, such a great winner in that um, uh, in that film, and I think they had ten weeks of rehearsal time. We didn't have that luxury, <laughs> but I knew I knew we wanted I knew I wanted to do a wonder and, and in talking with our, our stunt coordinator Mark Skizak, um, you know, we were like, this is ambitious. I don't know if we can do it, but if we do it, we have to commit. And I was like, let's fuck oh shit, I can't. You can do it. Because I, I was like, you know, let's fucking commit. Let's let's do this. Let's go. Um and so we went through and you know, part of this is is in, we had great we had great stunt doubles and we had a great stunt team and stunt, stunt coordinator choreographers, but you also have a lot of clocks, right? And she's she was so down and game willing to do her own stunts. Um, and in fact, I think the one of, if not the first conversation I had with her when I came on board was her asking, can I do my own stunts? <laughs> um, and you know, again, she's coming off a of Hawkeye, so she didn't have the, you know, her, her entire film going experience was a few days on Hawkeye, but she was so excited to do the physical, physical um, uh, actions and everything in the series. And so, you know, her being game, 
having an excellent stunt team, you know, working, there were so many departments working together, visual effects, camera department, uh, stunt coordinators, um, our AD team, you know, and we all kind of came together and, um, but it was all to tell the story of this character who, who, um, enters as a teenage girl and leaves as a cold-blooded killer. Yes, nailed it. It's so mm -hmm. perfect. Awesome. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about the influences. And again, I, I there's certain moments and certainly and I don't want to spill it for people but there's a, there's a train scene um we go we go back to Oklahoma and hometown and like this kind of outlaw returning home and there had this, it feels like there's a slight western tradition on there I, I'd love to know what was the kind of the signposting for you that you kind of want to draw in especially when I guess you know again if we look at the historical context a lot of the time when it comes to indigenous Americans who are represented they can't be for the baddies or the kind of like noble savage. There's all these tropes that go on, but I loved how much this felt like reclaiming a certain tradition that obviously a lot of people have been ostracized in. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I think, I think the, the, the history of the Western United States is, is also the history of a lot of Native American peoples. Right. So, so for myself, it's, I have a history and association with, you know, the West um, but it's from my perspective, you know, and, and we didn't want to shy away from that. We didn't want to, you know, like, um, and so like the, the scene that you're talking about, you know, that was, that was always something that was in there, but we want, again, because we're sort of grounded, because we're kind of street level, we, our visual style, um, you know, my cinematographer, Kira Kelly, who's amazing in the film, you know, the series looks, looks beautiful. Um, I keep saying film, it's a series. Um, uh, we shot it like a film, we felt like. Um, uh, you know, in, 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 designing, in designing that sequence, we intentionally grounded ourselves and we made rules for ourselves, which was, you know, yes, we were, yes, we were on trains. Yes, we were, there was a lot of practical stunts involved, but there were certain things that had to be done VFX. And we had, you know, we're dealing, when you're, we're dealing in a photo real uh, via visual effects environment, um, uh, you can kind of put the camera anywhere. So we made a rule for ourselves that we're only going to put the camera somewhere that it could exist in real life. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? That means that we're not like cameras aren't flying through walls and it's not going underneath a, <laughs> underneath a train or on the train tracks. You and, saw ambulance Michael Bay was like, nope. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so so um, we it, it was this really great thing of like by putting limits on ourselves we actually got to hopefully tell a more grounded grounded story um in, in this action set piece you know but again it's it's also like you know I, i'm thinking of you know you're talking about the history of uh, of the west and everything and and you know uh, most people know like the westerns like monument valley and like mm -hmm. john ford and like stagecoach and everything and my history my experiences is, is it's the same but different right like I have a, so I have, a, I have an adopted um, grandfather who was a very tall, handsome, you know, he was like six foot four, you know, uh, Native American man, high cheekbones. And so people, uh, you know, in, in old Hollywood, they would hire him to be an extra in, in like move in those old yeah. John Ford Westerns. And I say John Ford, but the old yeah. Hollywood Westerns in general. And um, um, uh, I remember, I remember growing up, he would tell us a story of like, you know, he was an extra and he, he was a great, he was a horse rider. He was a horseback rider. And um, uh, he was telling us this story. He's like, you know, I was so I was there, and he, he doesn't. He, he's, he got paid. He, he got hired because he's handsome and he can ride a horse, mm. right? So they're shooting like some some western. The AD or somebody from the AD team comes up to them and says, "There's about 15 of them. They're all on horseback." And and the guy comes up and says, "All right, so we're gonna say action, and you guys come. You guys ride over that hill. You guys ride over that hill." And there's a guy over there. He's gonna have a 10 gallon hat on. When he points his gun at you. And he shoots. Um, 
whoever falls off their horse, I'll give you 50 bucks. And so my, my grandpa's there. He's saying, like, I'm getting that 50 bucks. <laughs> anyway, it turns out everyone else had the same idea, right? So, and action. We come on over here. Right, right, right. And the guy in the tank oh, yeah, points, his, points his gun. All 15. <laughs> they all fall off the horse. And cut, 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 cut. You have 15 guys, 15 Indians, yeah. or 15 natives all laying on the ground. Everybody's, what, what are you doing? I said, I said, one person, one person's like, I want 50 bucks. Where's my 50 bucks? You know? Yeah, exactly. And so like, those were the stories that I heard growing up. And, but that's what I mean by it's the same, but different, yeah. you know? Um, I really, uh, it's interesting time this is coming. Cause I also, I love the matriarchal kind of, you know, influence the very much, very much part of the plot, the character development of the characters. And I guess as well, cause like Tantu was obviously in Killers of the Flower Moon recently. Uh, which my one criticism of is it felt like um, uh, this should have been from like Lily Gladstone's Molly's point of view. I really felt like there wasn't enough voices there, whereas this is such an antidote of making it about that and and establishing it through the line. So I guess understanding that and also understand through, um, you know, Echo's powers, the sense of, I mean, my understanding is that Echo's is, is like, she's echoing the kind of ancestors and it comes through and that's how it's kind of, she doesn't have specific powers, but she's kind of feeding that in. I don't know yet because I was in the earth for okay, 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 okay. But I guess, I suppose, yes, writing that sort of, having that such a strong presence and feel in, in this, I was about to say film there as well, in the series, like, tell me a little bit about uh, about that and forming that. Yeah, you know, and, and again, that was something that was very commonplace for, for us, you know, like the indigenous actors and the indigenous cast and crew, uh, you know, uh, behind the scenes and everything is like a lot of Native American cultures were traditionally like matriarchies, you know. Um, and so as we we're developing the series and we always knew we were going to explore her um, matrilineal bloodline, but it was a chance to sort of like honor and portray those traditions um, that were very common, very prevalent in, in the United States. Uh, pre-European context. And I mean, so you can't tell us a little bit about her? Because I know in the in the comic books, she's exposed to she because she's a bit like Taskmaster, right? But like in this, yeah, I'm trying to understand that. Or is this like, don't the, give it away. Wait, wait, wait. With the power, because the cause powers, yeah. just because of how I see it and it comes through and each episode kind of links back to something. It's like, oh, she's able to do that because of that. Like uh, the sharp shooting. <laughs> yeah, what I, so I can, I, I can, I can say, I'll, I'll, I'll say you have to watch the series. You have to watch the show. <laughs> But I will say the name Echo will make sense by the time you finish the series. Amazing. And I guess my final thing, I've got two minutes left, so I do have a water. I guess my final thing is, again, like how much fun did you have? Obviously, you've got what you were saying about um, shooting the present day scenes and keeping it very street level and all that. But then you seem to have a lot of fun shooting the historical moments from history. I also love that you had like lacrosse there. It's like, yes. Remind people where it started from. Yeah. But like, um, again, like, you know, the third episode, that kind of very like silent film and it also feeds into the kind of like beauty of like deaf, like deaf cinema representation. You can see the words on the screen. So yeah. how much fun was that deciding how you want to shoot those specific things? Because they felt very different to what we see in present day. There's like a slight, I don't know, like a visual language that's slightly different. Yeah. Um, you know, can I talk spoilers? No? Oh, all right. <laughs> no, I can't cuss. Um, uh, okay. So... Uh, in the second in the second episode in the second episode yes uh, what I can what I can say is that we get a we get a glimpse into uh, pre-European contact um, uh, 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 America and and so that was something that was incredibly uh, important and exciting for me and we really we really tried to sort of uh, create a world and it's tough because there there isn't a lot of documentation on this but again, in our collaboration with the Choctaw Nation, they were so crucial and instrumental. And we weren't, 
we weren't going to an archaeologist, you know, like to get like second or third hand or fourth hand information. We were going to the Choctaw Nations and they were sharing their direct uh, history, their Choctaw archaeologists, Choctaw historians, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we were able to build the world building in that regard was was so um, incredibly fun and fulfilling for myself to have the opportunities to put my fingerprints on something like that, you know, um, and then. I think that dovetails into like what you're talking about in, in the third episode, we have a great, um, we have a sort of a silent film that we do. And um, uh, uh, I'm a little, uh, that was actually directed by um, Katriana McKenzie, who was our guest director um, uh, for, for the middle, for the middle of the series. And um, uh, I'm trying, I'm trying to talk about it without <laughs> spoiling it, but, but it's like, you know, I, they absolutely crush it. Uh, uh, Katrina McKenzie and Magdalena Gorka, uh, her her cinematographer. They they shot it. It's beautiful. It's exquisite. Um, and I think they shot it in a way that hadn't been done prior to that, like in terms of the, the sensor they used mm. and, and everything. And again, I don't want to spoil it for people, but they, you'll see it. But that was always again talking about this uh, tradition of uh, silent films and Western films, and this was our kind of nod to yeah. that. Yeah, it felt like Rashomon at some moments. It's so beautiful. Oh, cool. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, you. thank you. And now it's time for our We should do a new for 2024. Oh, what's that? I don't know. What's that? I don't know. What should we do? Should we switch it up? We need to do something. We need like a fanfare, like a. <laughs> Why do we go? Why do we go? It's time for our ha take take the freak so chic. <laughs> oh gosh, you know what? We'll workshop it. We'll workshop we'll, it. We'll, we'll, workshop, we'll it. workshop it. Uh, let's get into Echo. This is Marvel's uh, first uh, TV show, first anything in 2024. Uh, a lot has been written, a lot has been said about how 2023 was not the best year for Marvel. They're kicking it off with Echo. Uh, five episodes, all dropping at the same time. What do we make of that as a, a way to release this, first of all? And what do we make of the journey that the lead character, Echo, goes on here? Clarice, I'll start with you. Okay, I need to read you what they said, because this is the first Marvel Spotlight. Right. Under the yeah. Marvel Spotlight banner, this is a new thing that is meant to bring more grounded, character-driven stories to the screen and focus on street-level stakes over larger MCU continuity. Mm -hmm. Can we agree that this is a lie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. What the, the first episode was like, remember what happened in Daredevil? Mm -hmm. Remember what happened in Hawkeye? Mm -hmm. And I have not seen the Daredevil TV show, uh. so I don't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> I think they did it quite efficiently in the first. It's like 30 minutes of the first episode. It's basically like, okay, let's let's reestablish who Maya is. Let's mm -hmm. give her a bit of the typical origin traumatic storyline of like lost mother, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Let's also see things more firmly from her perspective and then deepen that understand more deeper understanding of her relationship with Fisk. Mm -hmm. And I think that bit, I again, we, you know, I wanted to talk about the one shot fight sequence. Mm -hmm. That was one of those, one of the best coming of age fight sequences I've ever seen. Like she goes from grief stricken teen to formidable killer with a crack of a neck. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that was just like the shift in that was really well done. So <clears throat> I'm not um yeah I'm not sure it's hmm. I just I'm not sure it's a problem find... but I do think you're right it's not it's you need to see the series yeah. otherwise 
you know, if they were trying to say, uh, that's why I think they did that thing at the start of the 30 minutes of saying, don't watch those series. We've done it here. I mm. guess that they were trying to do an efficient way of saying, you don't need to watch anything else. We've got it all for you here. So they reused some scenes from Hawkeye. Mm-hmm. They then added a few new scenes from the perspective of Maya. Um, and obviously kind of like, and I think, you know, my, I guess my issue with the series that started off really well for me. And I did a big, quite, quite a big nosedive from the finale. Mm. It well, kind of reminded me of Secret Invasion. We were talking about like the five episodes, you know, and I wondered if it was, you know, I'd, they did do reshoots and I heard there was a lot of things that had to be changed mm. in the writing process. And um, what started yeah. off is this like really interesting, um, you know, I really like, I thought each episode had this kind of, I mean, I do think it, the first episode was, I thought was amazing, a great open episode. Second and third, definitely focused a bit more on the criminal conflict more than familial. And then we got episode four, which was very much about like that, the, the emotional conflict, which we've been waiting for. Mm. But where flashbacks were, I would say, were used, were finely tuned. Mm-hmm. Like they were, they weren't, a, they were um, what, efficient. Mm-hmm. Like they had an efficient use of flashbacks there. Mm-hmm. Final couple of episodes, it was just back, forth, back, forth, visual, edit, cut, cut. And it was mm-hmm. like, I have, like, there are so many narrative threads in the present day setting that haven't been sewn up for me or satisfactorily because you've spent so much time in the past, whether it's, and the fisk of it all, and we spoke about this, but the fisk of it all took over in such a way mm-hmm. that it was, a, a, I think it was detrimental to the, actually the really interesting story about, which I felt after watching What If, the episode, where Devery Jacobs actually voices one of the characters, I thought it was mm-hmm. going to be really, but that felt completely rushed and haphazard. And I was like, I, I don't really understand what's going on here. So mm-hmm. I don't know, it kind of went really nicely paced and then it went, like that at the end. The What If episode you're referring to is the Kohori episode, right? Yeah. Yeah, which is fantastic. I which think- I know they're different. I know they're different, obviously, kind of characters, but I really kind of felt that journey was yeah. well done and her as a projector. And I felt with Electra Cox, we started with this with Maya. It was like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think they kind of um, took away her edge by the end of it, where yeah. she was like, I was like, they just completely softened her. And I was like, hold on a second. Yeah. Like, can she not? I don't know. I, I, I was really stress out about that <laughs> the thing that confused me about the fist give it all in the last couple of episodes in hawkeye the final episode we see her sort of break away from fisk in a very dramatic way she shoots him in the head all that happens what and and a good chunk of what's going on in this first season of echo is her sort of following through on that and trying to I guess, establish more of a name for herself in the criminal enterprise. Okay, I get it. When Kingpin then comes back into the fray and offers her Queenpin, she's actually considering it, even though she knows that Kingpin killed her father, even though she's done everything that she's done previously. When Kingpin offers her that, there are multiple scenes where she's considering his offer. That, to me, felt incongruous with what we've learned about the character and what has been done with the character in previous episodes. So no, that... I, didn't, that, I disagree. I disagree with that. Okay, tell me why. I guess for me, I think it's... I suppose what they're really grappling with in this series is the way white Americans and people have manipulated, exploited right. 
and um you know controlled um indigenous people mm-hmm. um and in a way what i felt you know there's a line it's like violence has always been our language she mm-hmm. has been exploited manipulated grown up she has this traumatic paternal re- relationship with this uncle um that it's not as and i think the problem is it's not that it's not the incongruous, but I was filling in the gaps because I understood, I think it needed more time. It needed like another episode to right. get into these things. Mm-hmm. It kind of rushed this thing because I totally understand why she, she did that. If she's only ever known killing, like she, that's been what she's done. She's been raised to power struggle, trust, like mm-hmm. that's the language that they speak in. So for her to kill, shoot him in the face and then come back, not only that, he's kingpin. And it's mm-hmm. like, what am I going to do? I feel like I have no one else. Mm-hmm. My family abandoned me. So I see this as someone who's like, I'm a survivor. I'm reading the room. What is the best survival tactic for me? And her to be like the fact that she survived it and this guy still wants to. And I think that gets into like Kingpin's whole issues with, you know, his lack of family. You know, you know, I think I think when I was watching that, I was thinking about like Spider-Verse and how he's like mm. basically does all this thing because he wants to have his wife and kids back. You know, there's so much stuff that I feel like I know as someone who watched Spider-Man and all these things and understands Kingpin as a character that I don't think they did enough to establish on the screen, but I can understand exactly where Maya would be like, maybe I should do Queenpin because I mean, if it's Evo, he's going to kill me or, you know, cause I tried to kill him mm-hmm. or, 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 you know, I could actually become carry on in this work. It's the only thing I know. So that's why I don't think it's in, incongruous. I think it's just not, we didn't see it. Yeah, we didn't see that moment, and that's where I felt like so much. Why being five episodes, mm-hmm. it needed more time for mm-hmm. that to develop, and it didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way you explain it, now I get it, and I fully agree. I I did like the touch that with Kingpin, you know, ev- everyone else who has a relationship with Maya, they've taken the time to actually learn ASL to communicate with her. Kingpin, yeah, being what he's he's tried to sort of you know. Uh, go go a different way about that process with the technology. I thought that was some nice visual storytelling there. I thought that worked very well. But I hate that she said that line. It's like it didn't yes. need to be said. It's true. You That's didn't true. need to say you never learned sign language. We know. Yeah. Like this yeah. is the distance. The distance mm-hmm. between you. Those seekers are so different because when you know when Chula talks to it, there's like the way she whispers, there's a silence, and then she's you know it's an emotive sign language. There's someone actually making the effort, and that's mm-hmm. that. Bo- that's their bond. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the technological, and then you know disposable interpreter shows he would never you know it didn't need to be said, and that was really annoying to me. I was like mm-hmm. you know uh, I also I don't know what you felt about again I don't it's really annoying because I went from like this like this is pretty good like mm-hmm. I loved how much it had this western feel like this outsider coming back to town there's like a there's like a high stakes train robbery sort of mm-hmm. situation going on you know I love the roller disco scene mm-hmm. um and I love that in a way that that confrontation with Bonnie and these kind of rednecks and like these out you know these kind of outlets coming in it felt like mm-hmm. a western and reclaiming that sort of space mm-hmm. And then final two, but I mean, you know, Clarice, you know how you talk about like the zoomies and there's always Mm -hmm. a big end finale, but the fight sequence in this, after what they achieved in the first three episodes, the over editing, it was the most clumsy Mm -hmm. fight sequence I'd seen. I did. I was just like, what have I just watched? Mm -hmm. How did we go from this to this? Mm -hmm. Like, sorry, I'm going from high to low. It's just, Mm -hmm. I was just so annoyed. And I wanted like, again, I was like, what are we missing here? What has been taken away? That's what I kept thinking. What Mm -hmm. is on the cutting room floor? That's what I kept on thinking about. I think as I was like, I was coming to it not I am not really knowing much about Kingpin and I 
that's why I I understood the storyline that it was her coming to terms with this manipulative, very abusive upbringing by this like ersatz uncle figure. But I think as I didn't, there's a lot of baggage coming into it. And I was coming at it from the angle that like a lot of the people who worked on reservation dogs <laughs> are mm-hmm. either on the writing team, directing team, half the cast are from reservation dogs. And there's certain scenes and stretches of the episodes where I was like, Oh, they, I I can sense that this is by the same people and it has kind of the same pacing and the scent, the same like um kind of comic tragic vibe to yeah. it. And I just loved I loved all those scenes and the cast are amazing and I loved Avery Jacob. She's so she's kind of the main one of the main people in Reservation Dogs. And that this idea of the woman who walks between two worlds i think she's told on quite Mm. early on and that's referring both to her to her choctaw heritage like this the kind of the spiritual plane but also the physical material plane but also this idea that she walks between the two worlds of yeah the new york white fisk manipulative but kind of she you know she is convinced that he's a good man and she's having to like unpack that Mm -hmm. versus the family that abandoned her but love her dearly but fucked up really bad and can she forgive them like that that's all incredible and that's an incredible storyline and the scenes where it was just about that Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they're just talking about that were fantastic but then it's that thing and I feel like I, I'm really boring because I say the same thing about a lot of the Marvel projects where I think they come with really talented uh, creatives who have these great stories. And then there's like, oh, but we have to do this thing to set up Daredevil Born Again. Mm-hmm. So this is why the ending, yeah. we can't kill Kingpin. And that, I think that's kind of for me why the ending was so limp is that they couldn't actually have an emotional conclusion. She couldn't shoot him or tear his head off or anything. Because obviously they're both going to come back mm. for this other show and continue whatever was happening. Yeah, and I feel that, like I yeah. had no closure. I feel like I had no closure at the end of that yeah. show. And, and I still didn't so understand that choice either. I guess, it's yeah, just, yeah, because I just I don't know. Like, I guess it's this thing where she's a killer. Why can't she be a killer and be like punished? You know what I mean? Like, why can't she just be a killer? Maybe that's what she does to protect her nation. Like, why can't it be that thing where it's like fucked in? And she, and then again, that power thing. Like, I I totally understand like the echo thing. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, okay, so why is she chosen? And I get like you know the woodpecker spirit. Yeah. How does it work? Like, like what? Is it this? didn't explain yeah. to me because why was she able to go? Because even when she explained it, like your your um your uh what's it called? Like her mother in the flashback. Which again, so many flashbacks, mm-hmm. I feel. Like it was this weird thing where like there was these, like some of the flashbacks I thought were really well done. Like I really enjoyed the opening fourth episode flashback of, not really enjoyed, but I thought it was really powerful of like the f- ice cream vendor. Mm. Mm. I thought, oh, that tells me so much. That, that says so much about telling me. Mm-hmm. It's showing me. Mm-hmm. It's showing me. But then when it came to, it came to the Choctaw Nation stuff, you know, I, I was annoyed that it was a kind of these exposition dumps mm-hmm. and then flashback sequences. And it was like, and and then even those moments, I, I felt like I would have enjoyed to have just seen that maybe if I'd seen that scene, you know, mm-hmm. um, at play out rather than having the voiceover. I also felt like there's music in some of the score was so on the scenes where they're doing the sign language. 
it's like, this is supposed to be from the perspective of a deaf person. I don't understand why we const- why there was so much use of music to drown out those moments where actually the beauty mm. is like, it's the silence. Like, I've really felt those moments with the silence of the, like, there's something about when you can act and show the pain and the anger you know, usually actors like blah blah. It's like like you know that, but actually, you it's the subtlety of like you can see she's crying. She can see in her face that she's really upset and annoyed and angry, and she's like releasing this cathartic Myers and then Tantu Cardinal, and then you just have this swells of the sword coming up. It's like shut the fuck up, <laughs> let this moment breathe. Like it just literally, it was just yeah. I found that really, and again, like I didn't understand like how she got into his head. Like why is that a power? When her whole thing was, she can do sharp, stupid, stupid shooting. She's got a bit of strength, um, you know, and, you know, agility. You know, those things were like, she didn't have like crazy, which I didn't mind, you know, obviously Taskmaster powers, it's kind of already been done. But mm-hmm. it, again, it didn't explain to people how she can just spread out her powers now. Is it just because they're all from, from the matriar- matriarchal line so she can just share them? But why did, why, I guess, why didn't they all manifest powers? I will say I liked that her superpower was not related to her being deaf or using a prosthetic, which mm. I liked that they avoided that because there's not that kind of daredevils thing. That... Well, he's blind. Yeah. yeah. But he has like Yeah, that his sonar. disability. Yeah, his like disability is actually a superpower. I'm not a huge fan of that stuff. Um, yeah. So I liked that they avoided that this time. <laughs> yeah. I can see what they were doing, and I think, oh, this is so such a good idea. Have an episode where it's the most the mate the maternal and paternal figures in her life who have abandoned them. These are the most important figures, and having those kind of relationships get to confrontations in the same episode, and you know, as going along, like juxtaposing those together. But then she doesn't, apart from like, but she has this thing with Bonnie, where she sees her in in episode three, and then next time she sees her, it's in that scene where she's you know interpreting, and then. We don't get any kind of a resolution for it other than, oh, they give a few fight sequences. And then suddenly it's at the end, at the cookout, at the end. Same with Scully. Same with Cody Lightning's Biscuits characters. Mm-hmm. You know, there was... For me, there were, those were the kind of relationships that had been cut. Mm-hmm. Like, wh- why, do, why would she never speak to it? Why, would, why haven't we seen the conversation between them again? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't really understand that. And I feel... I, 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 it, just, it just really went off 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 piece towards the end bit and it didn't I didn't I didn't I feel like I needed those moments. I would like to see the six episode uh version of this season. I feel like it will answer a lot of the questions you have. Uh you mentioned Cody Lightning. The stuff that we do get with him I think is really, really great. I love the relationship that he has with Maya uh, and the banter that they share and the little sort of team up that they did in that first episode with the the, the train sequence was really good. You mentioned the one-take fight sequence in episode one. I'm a bit mixed on it because I think from the storytelling perspective, it absolutely works. Um, and I love what you were saying about she enters that scene as a teenage girl and she comes out. That's like, that's like the birth of a villain. Um, I thought that was really good. The filmmaking and the cinematography of it, absolutely loved the whole one-take notion of it. That absolutely hits. But the actual fight with Daredevil himself, while there are a couple of really fun bits in there, I feel about this fight the way you feel about some of the fights in Ahsoka in terms of the overly choreographed and weightless feel to some of the uh, sort of fighting that we're meant to be seeing. Like 
there are multiple points in that sequence where Daredevil hits Maya with a billy club. It feels like none of the hits have really lasting impact. And when I think about what made the fights in Daredevil so good, yes, there's a choreography element to it, but there's a lot of messy realism in those sequences as well, especially as those really long sequences go on, you really get to feel the exhaustion of the performance. And I get that this is a shorter fight sequence than what we get in the Daredevil series, but the impact of the hits in a Daredevil, I did not feel that same way about some of the fighting we get in this sequence uh, in the first episode. Uh, although it was cool to see, obviously, Charlie Cox as Daredevil doing this thing. Uh, I think it's one of the best castings in the MCU. I'm very excited for Born Again. Um, but yeah, I'm not as high on that sequence as, as you are, I think. Well, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I liked the skating rink. Yeah. See, yeah, that was good. The, the old boy shot, which I love, where it was just panning across as she like, yeah. was taking all the guys yeah. out. Um, but I feel like that was a little short. Like yeah. the, there was a bit where they go into the, I guess it's like a laser quest area mm. and yeah. Dracula by Rob Zombie, which is a song I love. Mm. <laughs> it's a good time song. It's playing and I was like, oh, cool. But okay, we're going to get a big Dracula fight sequence. Mm. And then the music stopped. I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I keep seeing that in action movies where they start playing this cool song and you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, mm. we're going to get a really like sick action scene to this. And then the song stops and it kicks into the score. And I'm like, I is this like a rights issue? I am mm-hmm. play the whole song. <laughs> I think some of the sound design work they do here is really, really good. The use of silence to clue us into Maya's headspace uh, is, yeah. is, is really, really good. The use of the heartbeat, um, they, they return to that a couple of times. And I think it's very, very effective. So yeah. I would have liked that more though. Yeah. I think about I think about Sound of Metal. Yes. Very good film. And I think in a way, you know, as much as I did like some of the needle drops, I do think we could have had more. Like again, they kind of brought it back at the end and I did quite you know, I enjoyed that the I will say this, the final kind of sort of flashback moment and ahead, everything was silent. Mm-hmm. You had it from her perspective. I think they did that, but I guess I think I wanted more consistency mm-hmm. of that. Cause I think that mm-hmm. would have just been like, that would have been, um, I guess not even brave. Like, I just think it would have been just more like God committed, committed mm-hmm. to what they were trying to do with this series. I think I would have liked that. And I wonder how much that is like someone coming in exec going, we need music here. Oh, it's too boring with that because you know, we, God forbid, we can actually have that street level realism that you're banging on about without some song coming in or whatever like that, you know? Um, sometimes watching that final sequence is like watching Top of the Pops. What You know, the edit fast, ba 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 different angles, like the flashback with, it, it just, yeah, it was just cho- so choppy and it was really disappointing because I, I think, you know, you know me, fight choreography and fight scenes is like what I live for, especially hand-to-hand combat mm-hmm. without, you know, guns. So, yeah. yeah. <sighs> what, yeah. what a, it was a game of two halves and for me, <laughs> Echo lost in a second. Yeah. Do, do you guys want to talk about, I don't understand this, but that post-credit thing, he's going to be the mayor of New York now? Yeah, that's, yeah, um, that's, that's normal. A, that's a thing from the comics. Um, 
Yeah. And yeah, it could okay. be it could be interesting. Um again, the reason why I'm a little bit confused with the whole Netflix canon of it all, does this Kingpin know that Matt Murdock is Daredevil, like the Kingpin in the Daredevil series knows? Does this Kingpin did he go to jail at the end of season three of Daredevil, or is this a completely different Kingpin? He didn't have to go through that. Because if he went to jail and did all those things, how does he feel like he's going to have a good shot at getting met? I mean, I say this in the world we live in. Because they need a bare buckle, buckle bra. <laughs> that line that's made what me the laugh. TV guy said. And I was like, oh, so yeah, this is not all, subtle. All of that stuff <laughs> makes me confused if the Daredevil and everything else is now canon, given everything that Kingpin did in that show. Um, I think considering real world politics, it's probably believable yeah. that they, he would still be elected if he went to jail. Let's be honest. I will say this, like, even though this show isn't as great as we wanted it to be, having a show that includes ASL and Maya's cultural background and all this work that they do with the Native Americans and incorporating it into a Marvel show in quite a seamless, smooth way for the most part, that I enjoy. And I hope that we get more representation, not just from that side of things, but from other people as well. Um, I feel like Marvel, there's a lot that we can say they haven't done well in Phase 4 and Phase 5, but when it comes to representation, they're not perfect, but I think they've made really good strides. And that's encouraging to see, especially at the level they're operating at, which is obviously four-quadrant blockbuster, what have you. So, yeah. I think I think you know this for me was kind of like the way Winter Soldier and Secret Invasion and Falcon Falcon and Winter Soldier and Secret Invasion went, where mm-hmm. I think there was a good idea at it, but I think it was mm-hmm. just they just messed with it too many cooks messed with it, but too many you know what I mean, and and it just did not stick the landing mm-hmm. um, for me. But I don't think this is as frustrating as Secret Invasion. I would say like yeah. Loki and Mar- Miss Marvel were great. Moon Knight mm-hmm. was great. So, yeah, I yeah. I don't think it's the best Marvel series, but I definitely don't think it's, like, yeah. at the bottom. I think it's dead in the middle, really. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like, you're not, Secret Invasion is the worst thing Marvel has done, period. And I don't foresee them making anything that bad ever again. <laughs> uh, but what I'm saying is the first few episodes were very good. Yeah. And then it just went on a fucking nosedive. And I was like, where's, yeah. where's what's happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and on... That note, uh, that is it for episode 141 of the Fate of Black podcast. It's the first one of 2024. We wanted to hit you with a bumper one. I think we did. Uh, got three films, a TV show, three interviews. Uh, lots of awesome discussion. Thank you for tuning in and happy viewing by whatever medium is safest for you. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast because it makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Fate Black Pod on twitter i am at i'm on woman on twitter and instagram and other places as well i'm at clarice low on twitter at clarice Lockley on instagram and i'm also on letterboxd loads a, a bunch of people followed me recently and i don't know why <laughs> because you're good at but what if you, you want to join Mm. Yeah, but I'm, I don't have any followers on there. I don't know where they came from. So <laughs> maybe they searched you or suggested you. Yeah, I'm on Letterbox and Instagram at Hannah Ines Flint. Cool. Uh, farewell, film friends. It is time to fade to black. Mm-hmm.